Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Uh, as you can see from my background there, I'm coming to you from uh, an uncharted desert isle uh, after my three-hour tour. No, uh, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Those of you that listen to us in the U.S., a big holiday weekend, which I sort of needed because there were 17, 17 DC books this week, and that included Gotham City Villains 100-page spectacular and tons of annuals, which are oversized. And it's not uh, unheard of for publishers to do this when there's an extra Wednesday in a month. They will often, um, or an extra Tuesday, I guess, in this case, since DC books come out on Tuesday, th that fifth week, they put all the annuals. But uh, Rock and I were talking before we started, and it, it's, it's sort of unfortunate that there's so much packed into this week because uh, these books, a couple of them especially, deserve, I feel like, their own their own day almost, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you have too many blockbuster movies scheduled to be released on the same weekend, how movie studios will spread them out. So people aren't spread too thin. Uh, you know, we read everything. We get the press copies. It doesn't cost us anything. Um, but man, for people that read a lot of these books, it'd be an expensive week. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's good things to say about all the books. I feel overall it was a strong week, but I mean, you don't want to put out so many books that, that the hardcore fans feel like, oh, my God, now now it's work that I'm I'm reading so many books. And, yeah, really Batman heavy. But, again, like we say all the time the Batman is the engine that drives DC and pays their bills. So it's not hugely surprising, I guess. But, yeah, I, I but don't know. It's, I feel like it's, it's eight titles this week, eight Batman-related titles. If you throw in Robin, uh, that's well over $50 American if uh, if you're a diehard Batman fan. And I got to say, there's there's three comics that I believe deserve to have bet more attention this week, but they're going to likely be overshadowed in some people's minds by the all the Batman titles. And that's Action Comics 1037, which had a pretty big uh, cliffhanger ending, which uh, we'll get into. Uh, Justice League Incarnate, which uh, Joshua Williamson's next, next big event, next big series leading into the uh, Summer Crisis event. And Wonder Woman Historia, which we've been waiting for a while from Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil uh, Jimenez. So I just don't like how these an this annuals week is overshadowing some frankly some titles that deserve more love yeah i agree and and again it might not we're not pointing the finger at anybody it might not be 100 percent dc's fault sure. uh, i know that the wonder woman historia got pushed back because of some printing issues and whatnot so yeah i mean it's not it's not the the best sort of situation here but i, I what i really think would help and we've talked about this none of neither of us are big fans of having the backups and having the exercise books the backups don't add much except a dollar onto the price. But the other thing, I am more than ready for all the publishers, not just DC, to stop with these 100-page anthologies that cost 10 bucks. Oh. Um, you know, I, I know we had talked in the past. I, I've even said, well, maybe anthology is the way to go. Yeah, when you maybe have four stories, like the way Batman Urban Legends does it. I think that's the way, like four stories is fine, but when it's eight or nine or 10 stories and it's 100 pages and it's 10 bucks, it's, it's just because the... The quality is so widely uh, disparate, you know, and yes. you feel obligated to read it all because you paid $10. And frankly, some of them just aren't very good. So uh, anyway, let's step right in. Uh, the aforementioned Action Comics number 1037 from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Miguel Mondoca is the artist. Adriana Lucas does the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, and there was a backup and... <laughs> To, to shoot myself in the foot here. I actually enjoyed this backup quite a bit. Maybe it's because I don't feel like we get enough Martian Manhunter these days, but there's a Mar Martian Manhunter 
backup called A Face in the Crowd from writer Sean Aldridge. Adriana Mello's The Artist, High Fives the Colors, and Dave Sharp does the letters. So, uh, yeah, Rocky, this was an action-packed issue. What'd you think? Well, I love this, man. I'm, I'm Philip Kennedy Johnson. He, you know, like I said before, I've used that magical phrase, lipstick on a pig. That's what he's, that's what he's, he's taken Bendis' Superman stories, which were awful. In my mind, I wasn't a fan of, and... Uh, I'm. This was basically the first comic that I want to. I wanted to read this week because I'm just so excited. I think he's doing such a great job with the Superman taking the authority, going to War World. I'm. I'm completely. Uh, I'm so. I'm so excited about this, and I think he's Philip Kennedy Johnson has said, done such a good job that I was more than prepared to forgive the continuity glitches and the hiccups because coming out of uh, Grant Morrison's Superman and the Authority, you know, there's not. Obviously, the continuity is a little bit wonky here with Superman with the gray hair and their attempts to explain it. I don't care about that. Uh, this story is really simple. Superman wants to protect uh, the Phaeolosians, who are basically ancient Kryptonian refugees. They're being uh, they're they're being chained. They're they're slaves of Mongol, and he's going to do whatever it takes. And despite the fact that Superman is losing his powers and he's losing more and more of his powers under a red sun, and Mongol is aware of that, he goes with the authority. To War World to do it. Uh, uh, extra gravitas is added to the fact that the the Council of the United Planets is well aware of what's at stake here when Superman's going to War World, and there's a there's a great scene where the the various heads of of intergalactic state are having a, a meeting of the United Planets, and you got the Tamaranians, and you got the Kuns, and you got the uh, Daxamites, and you've got all the the various. Uh, various well-known and lesser well-known alien races of the DC universe having a meeting and they're deciding whether or not to help Superman. And of course, we know the one leader, uh, uh, one leader uh, is we know is corrupt or likely in the, in the back pocket of, of Mongol. And it's really tragic, but they go through the pros and cons of helping Superman. And the bottom line is, is unfortunately, cowardice wins the day. They're afraid of helping Superman on the off chance that Superman loses. And then, of course, they got to face Mongol alone. And it's really sad to see. But ultimately, that's the decision they face. There does seem to be some signs that there are other people on the uh, United Planets Council uh, that, that feel differently and maybe working behind the scenes that will ultimately help Superman. But really the highlight of this issue is just the battle sequences alone. And just, just the, I mean, this is very visceral for those of us. This is war world saga part two. So this is kind of like the worst kept secret. Obviously this is the beginning of the tale. We know from future state that all Superman ultimately ends up being part of the becoming a, almost like a permanent gladiator of war world. So we know that in this first altercation with Mongol in this arena, we know that Superman is likely going to lose if, if, if you've been reading future state. So I'm not really giving any spoilers away there, but the manner in which he, uh, the manner in which that this first loss for Superman and the authority takes place, the visceral nature of it, the violence of it, it, it really has an impact. It, I, I felt it. I mean, it was just like, I mean, I, I, there's a point here where Mongol, uh, re, you know, you know, takes a pretty serious blow against Superman. I felt it. And just the words and the, the, the dialogue was excellent. The, I, th I think Philip Kennedy Johnson nailed the characters of the authority. These are characters that, uh, they're facing, uh, Superman has bit off more than he could chew here. Superman clearly, even though he knew it was a trap, 
Superman knew it was a trap. Batman, everybody told it was he was a trap. Superman knew it. The Justice League knew it. Everybody knew it. And yet he had to go in alone with a team he wasn't familiar with. And and everything that he has feared, everything that we Superman fans have feared has come to fruition. They are simply outmatched and outclassed in this first battle against Mongol and his new team of uh, supervillains. And the manner in which it plays out, the action sequences, the loss, the, the seeming loss of life. Uh, there's, it looks like Apollo may be taken off the playing field. Uh, it, there, there's, is, Superman is badly injured, to say the least. <laughs> this is just one beautiful, gorgeous action action sequence. The, the scenes are, are, are just, this is so much fun to read. And it's gut-wrenching. And boy, oh boy, do I want to come back for more. And I just, this is, this is, um, in terms of action, this is already, I can tell you, this is a, one of my, my top two pick of the week. I have another one, uh, which I'll get to, but I really enjoyed this. I think Superman's firing around cylinders now. I'm just loving this. And I just can't wait because one thing, when, when superheroes lose this badly, you know that when they come back and win, it's going to be that much more epic, or at least that's the feeling I have and the hope that I have. And, and there's that word hope. I can't believe I'm saying word hope in conjunction with, uh, there's, this is a hope, there's hopelessness in this issue, but all the, all the reason why I'm feeling hope that what's going to, Superman's going to come back from this stronger than ever. And we know ultimately Philip Kennedy Johnson is pretty much, he's strongly hinted at that on Twitter. But anyways, I really enjoyed this. Uh, what'd you think? Yeah, it was pretty solid. I didn't enjoy it as much as you. Um, and you know, there's various reasons for that, that it's more personal preference. I, I, I think, or I guess I would say, uh, yeah, it's it's not a big surprise when you talk about the politics of this UN Council, United Planets, whatever. Um, it's kind of sad and cynical that that's what always happens. You know, you think about the United Planets in terms of Legion of Superheroes and the future of the DC Universe. Um, it's supposed to be something, to, to your point, hopeful where people can get things done, but you get people together, whether they're human or not, alien, other alien races, and they, they can never choose the right thing. Everybody's always, and again, it's sort of a cynical outlook from Philip Kennedy Johnson. Everybody's out to cover their own butts. Um, but it does seem like the, the leader of the council may just based on the, I mean, it's not a smile when he, when Superman dies at the end and everybody realizes that, you know, one of them, they walk away saying, may God forgive us for not choosing to help Superman. And it's sort of a little smirk on his face. So you wonder if he's, maybe working with Mongol in some way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a cynical take for sure. Um, and I, I sort of could do without that. I could do without those politics of it. I guess maybe he, Philip Kennedy Johnson felt the need to put it in there because people would wonder, well, why, why aren't other people helping Superman? Well, because then you can't tell the story that he wants to tell, right? Same reason the justice league didn't come along. It's gotta be this inexperienced team that Superman put together and we see what happens to Superman himself. Will he survive? And that sort of thing. So, you know, I've, I've talked about it a lot, how I feel like this story is a little bit uh, derivative of the exile storyline from way back in the day that Roger Stern did. But I'm willing to give it a chance. The art from Miguel Mendoca is absolutely gorgeous. Colors from Adriana Lucas are very nice as well. Uh, so it's it's a very beautiful comic. Maybe the, well, 
probably the second best. There's one other comic that probably tops this in terms of line <laughs> work and artwork this week. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a great comic. It's action filled. It's certainly like to Rocky's point, lipstick on a pig. We're leaving that Bendis era behind and moving into a more um, traditional superhero or Superman comic. The one thing I wonder, you know, you talk about, well, we know what's going to happen to some extent because of future state and, you know, the war world storyline there. But here's what's interesting. So we also could say that we know what's going to happen in Batman because of the magistrate storyline that we saw in future state Gotham. Again, future state were possible futures that could come to pass, but maybe wouldn't. Well, we're going to talk about Batman uh, fear state Omega in a little bit here. And we're going to see, and, and we've already covered other books where we see Simon Saint got thrown in jail. The magistrate got stripped of its power. So we already are not going to see that future, the future of Gotham city controlled by the magistrate that's already gone by the wayside. So we already know that possible future is not going to happen. So I, I, I bring it up just to say, we think we know what's going to happen. We think Superman's going to lose, but you never know at what point the story is going to veer off and it's yeah. not going to be the future state uh, war world storyline. Obviously it hasn't veered off yet. We're just barely getting started here. Yeah. Um, no, it's a so, good point because a lot of the other storylines and some of the other DC titles for future state, they haven't come to fruition. So yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. They've already, yeah, they've already veered off. So at what point does, does this veer off? I will say this. Uh, in terms of the characterization for the rest of the authority, this is my favorite issue of getting a chance to see how this team works and interacts. Really like the uh, the characterization Phil gives us for um, for Apollo, for Manchester Black, um, even the Enchantress. Uh, nobody gets a whole lot of screen time, but they all get a little bit, and I I, I liked the feel and the reactions and just, you know, sort of the character acting that he gave the, the authority because it really helped sell the events of the issue and just how impactful they are. Um, so yeah, based on, on what happened to Superman and we heard rumors, Oh, Superman's going to die that they're going to kill him in war world. And Phil Johnson's pushing back on that and saying, no, nah, that's not actually what's going to happen, but I can't tell you what's going to happen because I would be spoiling it, but this okay. is, it's definitely an epic story. So, like I said, I didn't enjoy it as much as Rocky, but it is a solid issue, and the art is top-notch from M Miguel Mendoca. I really love the Martian Manhunter story as well that was in the, in the back of the book. Um, we're getting somebody named the, the Human Flame that may or may not be sort of a, a nemesis for Martian Manhunter. I mean, he is a Martian, so he is uh, susceptible to fire. Um, well, the human flame, it, bear in mind, the human flame in the pre-final crisis, the, it was the human flame's desire to kill Martian Manhunter and Libra, the, the multiversal uh, Libra killed right. Martian Manhunter to fulfill the human flame's desire. So human flame, we saw him quite a bit in pre-final crisis back in the day. Yeah, it's a good point because we just saw Libra in the pages of Deathstroke Incorporated. That's right. So yeah. So there might be some link there. Who knows? Yeah. So, but, but anyway, I mean, it, it feels like this might be somewhat of a detective type story, which again, it, that suits John Jones, Martian Manhunter. He is very much a detective. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. it. It did a good job of humanizing him right from the start too. Uh, he, I, I feel like he's a very under, underrated character. He gets solo titles and they never last that long because the sales aren't that 
great. And I don't understand why, because he's such a, he's such a, he, for being a Martian, he is one of the most human characters in the DCU in terms of yeah. emotion and how much he cares about his teammates in the Justice League and whatnot. So I don't know. I, it's ironic. It it's ironic. But yeah, you're yeah, right. It it's really true. is. Yeah. And he's, he's more, he's, he's got all the same powers as Superman. Plus he can turn invisible and has mental powers as well. Like, yeah, he should be more popular. But yeah, I just want to make one comment too about the, this backup feature as well. What I find artist Adriana Mello, I find her art here actually much better than her art in Wonder Girl this oh, this yeah. week. And and I don't know why, but Adriana Mello's art on Wonder Girl just has just consistently it just hasn't been up to task for me. But I I, I know she's a better artist and. This, uh, this backup feature proves it. I mean, I find the level of detail and backgrounds here to be better than uh, the one, her artwork in Wonder Girl. But that's just well, an observation you know, it, people can yeah, judge for what, themselves. But. What's interesting is, so this is this is the Wonder Girl issue that comes out today is the first issue that Adriana Mello drew before they were all written and drawn by Joel Jones. And I feel like Adriana Mello, and I was going to mention this when we get to Wonder Girl, she used a thicker line, like her line weights are way heavier, and it's almost like she was trying to draw in the style of Joelle Jones. Yeah. Rather than in her own style, which, which yeah. is what this is, which is what she did on Plastic Man, for example, yeah. with uh, I, with Gail Simone. But yeah, yeah. On, on Wonder Girl, it doesn't work. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Sure. Uh, anything else to add about Martian Manhunter? Rocky? Not really. I, I like Martian Manhunter, uh, and this is actually uh, – it, just for the human flame, and because I, I, I remember. I mean, I'm a. I got the hardcover of Final Crisis. Every now and then, I go back and reread it because it's Grant Morrison, and I, I always, I always forget what I read. And he, he's hard enough to understand at the best of times, Morrison. But it, it is the lead into Final Crisis was an epic story, and and Libra and the human flame and the death of Martian Manhunter, and uh, that that's all that's all classic DC stories uh, leading into crises, and uh, it's. And this human flame looks, he looks cooler here than he ever did in the past. He, he looks like he lost his pot belly because he was kind of a fatter character. But this is a much cooler look for human flame. He looks a lot, he looks, he, he's, he's definitely gotten, gotten an upgrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he definitely, definitely has. So, yeah. uh, all right, up next we have Batman the Detective number six. This is uh, the end of the miniseries from writer Tom Taylor, Andy Kubert on pencils, Sandra Hope on inks. Uh, Brad Anderson on colors and Clem Robbins on letters. I have sort of mixed feelings about this. It was great to get Tom Taylor's take on a Batman. And this is an older, more grizzled Batman. Um, you know, he even talks in the beginning or, and we see him without his uh, shirt on and he's got, you know, a lot of scars and everything. And it was tying into Batman's past with Honoré Ducar. And, uh, and there was a lot to like about it. Um, the art from Andy Kubert. It's not my favorite Andy Kubert art. Uh, it's almost like he was trying to get down and, and dirty and, and Batman's almost like a John Romita Jr. Batman, like he, John Romita Jr. was drawing him in All-Star Batman, um, where he's sort of blocky and, and bigger. And I don't know if that's how he's trying to show his, his age. Um, but ultimately, it was it was an interesting story, if not a little anticlimactic. You know, we, we find we found out the origin of this equilibrium last issue, how Somebody that Batman saved got drunk and ran into the car that she was in with her husband and her daughter, and her husband and daughter died. And so she blames Batman for – she calls him an agent of chaos, and you know anything that anybody does that Batman saved shouldn't have happened. And so her goal is to go out and kill anybody that Batman's ever saved. 
including the entire city of London, right? So she buys all these um, these surplus military drones, and she's going to bomb London. And how does Batman stop it? Well, he just calls up or- his good friend Oracle, and uh, she just, you know, with a few keystrokes, up. Ah, Everything's fine. No bombing of London. It, it yeah. was very anticlimactic. Yeah. But at the same time, if it had been some other kind of far-fetched kind of thing, we'd be sitting here going, well, why didn't he just call Oracle? Oracle could have just – so I can see it both ways. you know. Uh, but I, I, I think where the story really shines, though, is in the, the interactions between Batman, that, that, that sort of triangle there. Of, of You have Batman on one point. You have Equilibrium on one point. You have Henri Ducard on one point. And in a way, you know, Andre, he also trained Equilibrium to be this uh, assassin. She was a mercenary for a long time before she put that life behind her and finally found happiness with her husband and then had the daughter. And that's why she was so distraught when that her, her family was taken from her. So they're, they're all different points on a triangle and their relationships between each other are fascinating. And that's where this book really shines, especially at the end when – you see Batman in his way feeling responsible for equilibrium. Certainly he doesn't feel like he shouldn't have saved that guy that then went on to make a bad choice and, you know, killed equilibrium's daughter, but he feels for her. I mean, you know, he lost his parents, right? He lost the two people closest to him. So he sympathizes with her. Henri Ducard feels like he's responsible and, you know, he's Henri Ducard. So he's going to, he's going to find the final solution for this, right? He's going to kill equilibrium and then equilibrium, even herself, you know, once she realizes, Oh wait, you're right. Batman saved my life. I, now, now that means I have to kill myself. Like just the, the thinking, like that's fascinating. And then of course, Batman again, saves her and, you know, he sticks his hand out and catches a bullet point blank, like covers the muzzle. Right. And his hand is, doesn't get blown off. I was kind of like, eh, I don't know about that, but at least Henri Ducard, <laughs> at least he acknowledges it. Yeah, and I felt like that's Tom Taylor acknowledging it. And he says, "I'm guessing you shattered your hand into a lot of pieces." Because Andre's like, "You think yeah. you're going to stop every bullet? Well, I stopped that one. You know that she was going to blow her own head off. Yeah, but you shattered your hand into a million pieces. So at least Tom Taylor acknowledged it. He he probably came up with the idea and thought this will be really cool. And it's a great image from Andy Kubert, but it was a little far fetched. It immediately took me out of the story. I was like, wait, what did he do? He's not Superman. You know, like I get you have a Kevlar glove or something, but you still have the force. You still have the explosion of the gunpowder. Um, so yeah, I, 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 but at least again, it was acknowledged. Uh, so overall, I, I feel like this was a, a good Batman story, not a great Batman story. You know, I first heard Tom Taylor was doing it and I was called the detective. I had really high hopes didn't end up being as maybe as uh, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but I don't know, maybe not as impactful as I thought it would be. I, I mean, I love the fact that we got Henri Ducard because we don't get enough of him and he's such a pivotal person in Batman's origin. Um, and I thought the equilibrium villain was, you know, good motivation, good villain. Uh, so overall it, it was, it was good, maybe not great. Um, but I, I could see myself going back and rereading this probably not something I'd, reread like once a year or so but yeah maybe once every couple of years sit down and give it a read i think uh reading it all together in in one sitting the pacing would be pretty good and it would it would probably flow pretty fast so uh overall i'd say it was pretty pretty solid what do you think rocky i agree with you 100 i think this is going to make an excellent trade i i love this ending this was a taylor n- nailed this ending for me this had 
this was a little bit tropey. You identified some scenes. It was kind of convenient in parts, you know, suddenly, you know, in fact, Oracle even mentioned it was the, a surprisingly easy hack when she hacked into the drones and, uh, and reprogrammed the drones uh, away from uh, equilibrium in, in favor to, to aid in, to aid Batman. Uh, the, there's a couple of scenes that were my, my favorite. Uh, one in particular was, uh, when uh, Ducard mentioned that uh, Equilibrium was a better student than Batman because she had one edge over Batman, and that is she could Charlotte, uh, uh, Sh- Charlotte, this uh, who's Equilibrium. She she actually has friends, and uh, whereas Batman has assets, e- Equilibrium has friends. And I found it interesting at the end that you know, you know, Ducard almost criticized. He meant that as a criticism of Batman that Batman doesn't have as many that he never made friends, whereas Equilibrium made friends, but Batman didn't. And yet, in the very next scene, Batman is literally talking with with the European Alliance of the Bat. I mean, so really, as Batman, is it you know the irony is that Batman considers them assets, but he in many ways Batman protects his assets as if they are his best friends because Batman will give his life for a single asset. So in many ways, it's it's a little bit of, of a miss. It's not entirely accurate to say that, well, Batman has no friends. Well, maybe he doesn't per se. Like he's not a touchy-feely kind of guy. But when you're yeah. one of Batman's assets, he gives his life for you. So that's a pretty big thing too. And the other thing that I thought was a surprisingly touching moment, at least for me, uh, but when, when Ducart was dying, uh, what, what Batman said to him, I just sort of touched my heart. Uh, you know, Batman, you know, on the off chance that Ducart would, was, was going to die, he said, you know, he reminded him, you know, you know, you know, every time I got to a crisis in time, uh, Ducart, you were with me. Every time I, I, was, I, made, I just barely made it. Every time I, I pulled off the impossible as Batman, it was because of you. It was because of your training. And it was it was Batman, you know, just t- telling Ducart that. And of course, just when you think Ducart's going to die, a fantastic scene of Batman driving that Batmobile right off the bridge and landing right on the boat where Ducart is. I mean, this has a cinematic feel to it. I mean, I'm reading this and I'm just I just got a shit eating grin on my face again, man. And that's what I love about this stuff. And the uh, art by Andy Kubert feels so kinetic and just visceral and, and action packed. And I just really enjoyed this. And, and even at the end there, and, and you nailed it when, when, you know, Batman even saves Equilibrium's life. And of course, because he saved her life, she tries to kill herself because, you know, anyone who Batman saves has to die. And Batman doesn't allow that happen, uh, to happen. I mean, I just, I really like this. And, and even at the ending there where, where Batman reunites, reunites Squire with her mother. And it was the Squire's mother who ironically was the one who actually ended up saving the life of the drunk that took the life of Equilibrium's family. So there was that connection there. So there was there were some narrative tethers that were tied up neatly by Tom Taylor at the end of this. This was a beautiful story. I like this. I thought it tied things up nice. It had I got I got some good feelings of Frank Miller vibes in in spots. And it wrapped things up nice. And even though it was only for a few panels, I love seeing an older Nightwing, uh, Dick Grayson and, and Barbara Gordon together helping out Batman. Overall, a pretty good comic. Yeah, so much Ducard. I, I sort of feel like, man, if we if we don't have Alfred right now, it would be fun to see Ducard come over and fill that That's role a great idea. Little, That's a great a idea. To, to be a different dynamic. And then yeah. maybe Ducard would finally say, you're just not willing to do what it is. <laughs> takes to clean up Gotham Batman and then he he would leave you know yeah that that's a really cool. good idea yeah, yeah I mean obviously I, it would it would it would, I mean it would 
it would be a retcon in turn because this is you know in the future when Batman's older, but it just I don't know. I I I love Henry Ducard as a character. I yeah. want more of him. Can you imagine Henry Ducard trying to make cucumber sandwiches for Batman in the Batcave? <laughs> I, I I don't know if that would go over well, but I, but but I think that would be actually kind of funny. I mean, imagine a, a physically injured Ducard Ducard that that needs to do something else and he's bored. And what what better job? What more active kind of job can you imagine if you're going to be retired than being Batman's butler? What the hell? He would, uh, he would just bring a tray that had a loaf of bread and a cucumber on it. No, nothing sliced. He's like, take a bite of the cucumber and then take a bite of the bread, whatever. It all yeah. ends up in the same place anyway. Yeah. Oh, good. All right, let's move on. Uh, Batman Fear State Omega number one from writer James Tynan. Several artists on here. The, uh, the main sort of framework stories by Ricardo Federici, uh, Christian Ducey, Ryan Benjamin, Guillaume March, and Trevor Hairsign each get their own turn to do Little vignettes in the story, Chris Sotomayor on the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, and then at the end, it says Arkham Tower rises in Detective Comics 1047, because at the end of the book, I'll start with the end first. Um, th- this person shows up and she shows up in a few different Batman centric titles this this week. Ch- Dr. Chase Meridian, played by the uh, uh, God, what's her name? Nicole Kidman. Uh, in the Val Kilmer Batman. <laughs> that's where so, that's from. I couldn't remember yeah. where I. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So way back in 1995 or 96, whenever that movie came out uh, and he drops uh, the scarecrow off at this new, what, what they're saying will be Arkham tower. Although they're still ta- They're still talking about what it might be named. I'm still hoping they, they're going to name it Pennyworth tower, but we'll see. But that's uh, where we see, okay. Arkham tower, that that's a big storyline that's going on. We've seen a lot of it. Um, being developed, especially in books this week. Uh, the Ricardo Federici art, and I, we talked about this last time. He's known more, mostly, as per, especially for his DC work, as a cover artist. But he did Batman Alpha, or Batman Fear State Alpha. And I loved it. I, I thought it was fantastic. I'm like, why doesn't this guy do more interiors? Well, probably because he's probably slow based on the sort of intricate character acting background and, uh, and sort of shading that he does. But man... He, just gorgeous, wonderful storytelling. And then as, so basically what's happening is they're going to, they're getting ready to transport Scarecrow. He has a plan to break out. Batman's one step, step ahead of him, throws him in the Batmobile and says, I'll take you to, you know, the new Arkham, whatever myself. And as they're driving through on their way to Arkham tower, we get sort of this recap and epilogue, right? Like here's what happened in fear state. Here's kind of the status of everything. Here's a little follow-up of things that you might not have known. For example, um, Miracle Molly testified against Simon Saint and made a deal that she would go to prison and take the rap for all of the robberies that the Unsanity Collective performed. The rest of the Unsanity Collective goes free. Simon Saint gets put behind bars because of the testimony of Miracle Molly, and Miracle Molly goes behind bars too. Again, I think there's a lot to Miracle Molly. I think she's a good character. I hope we see more of her. Uh, we get a little vignette about the cleanup of the Magistrate Skybase from Gotham Harbor. We're reminded that Simon Saint's been removed from the board, and um, the the board of Saint Industries is actually shuttering the Magistrate brand, but that probably just means it's going underground. Meanwhile, um, there's hints. The board, Simon Saint, uh, Simon Saint, or Saint Industries board, moving to have uh, Saint put on house arrest so he can work off his debt to society. 
working for the U.S. military. And when they say that, we see Amanda Waller, which, again, I thought Amanda Waller was persona <laughs> non grata out hiding somewhere. But again, forget about that continuity. Right. Um, I'd, all, I'd be all for Saint going on to the Suicide Squad if it means that he doesn't survive the, uh, the experience. We also see that, to nobody's surprise, Peacekeeper 1, um, Sean Mahoney escapes when they try to remove all the equipment from him. I think he's a terrible tropey character. I would have been fine never seeing him again after Future State, but I guess somebody thinks he has some worth, so he's got to escape into the sewers of Gotham or what have you. So we haven't seen the last of him. We get a little bit of uh, screen time for those people that are shippers of uh, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn, uh, and Catwoman basically tells uh, – or Catwoman has a conversation with uh, the gardener, and they sort of – you know, recap some of what's gone on in terms of the, the Harley Ivy storyline. And then Poison Ivy confronts Gardner about why she split off that part of Ivy uh, in the first place. And it doesn't happen in this issue. I think it's actually the Gotham City villains, but we get hints of a lot more action for, for Poison Ivy to come. And then, uh, and all of that is fine. I didn't really have a problem with any of these storylines per se, but then we get to the, the little cleanup of the clown hunter, Again, terrible character. I just, I don't care for him at all. Um, the first thing I notice is he's almost as tall as Batman when Trevor Hairstein draws him. And that shouldn't be a thing because he's always been very, very short. So that bugged me right away. But then <laughs> we're told that he's going to be trained by Ghostmaker. And he's the reason he agrees to do it is because he doesn't have to use his crappy bat bat anymore. Uh, Ghostmaker is going to teach him how to use a sword. Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, a, a character that I could sort of live without. So this this wasn't at all what I expected. You know, we talked about other storylines, especially with the anti-Oracle still being up in the air. And would it get resolved in Batman First State Omega? It doesn't. This is just sort of clean up and tying up some strings that maybe you didn't even realize were still dangling. Um, but at the same time, it, it was enjoyable. It was great to kind of put a bow on Fear State for the most part. Uh, and wrap it all up and give Joshua Williamson, the next writer of Batman, more of a clean slate to work with. Uh, so I thought that it worked. Having the different artists do the different parts of the story worked as well because it doesn't seem so disparate. Because a couple of the, the artists here, like Tri this is definitely not Trevor Hairstein's best work. Uh, it feels very, very rushed. Um, the rest of the art I, th I thought was pretty serviceable, although, again, none of it lives up to the Ricardo Federici art, which is absolutely spectacular. But... Uh, yeah, so overall, uh, it was solid. I, I almost feel like we could have had Fear State Alpha and then Fear State Omega and skipped everything in between. Uh, but maybe that's just me. So I don't know. What would you think of this one, Rocky? Well, I'm, I'm going to be a little uh, less – I'm going to be a little bit more uh, critical of it. I, I, I thought this was – it. I, I guess I guess it's – you're right when you say it's a little bow on, on the story of Fear State. But the thing is, if you're not a big fan of Fear State, the people who aren't aren't a fan of Fear State, this might just help restore the status quo. Uh, frankly, I didn't need any none of the information provided in this comic. That I, I didn't find any of it necessary. I, I frankly, I pretty much assumed everything that occurs in this comic, except for I never I didn't think that Clown Hunter would be trained by Ghostmaker. I think that's a really stupid idea. I don't think Ghostmaker would tolerate Clown Hunter, to be honest. Uh, the rest of it, 
as far as Miracle Molly, I thought Miracle Molly would sort of escape into the ether. I would prefer her escaping than anything else. But again, that's not a big deal. So she paid for her crime. As for the rest of it, Simon Saint, I mean, we didn't, it probably, we, we didn't need to know that Simon Saint might end up working for Amanda Waller. We, that could have just been a nice surprise in the pages of Suicide Squad. None of uh, this was, this was definitely an issue that people can skip. I, I, I personally would not recommend this if, especially this week where there's like eight different bat related titles out. If you're, if you're budgeting your money, do not get, I would not recommend that people get Fear State Omega. It's absolutely unnecessary uh, with respect to knowing, you don't need to know any of the information in here. None of this is crucial for moving forward with Batman. In my view, I don't think it's, you know, none of this is provided information that I was really dying to know or that I was asking. I was actually wondering what on earth this would be about. And then I just found out that, oh, well, America Molly goes in prison for a while. Well, okay. Um, you know, Clown Hunter is going to be trained by Ghostmaker. Well, okay. Simon Saint is arrested and he might end up with Amanda Waller. Well, okay. And Batman has some long, like, and even, even this, and I realize it's the present day Batman, but this... Batman is not the type of guy that's going to get into a car and get talky-feely with Scarecrow. I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I guess I'm being maybe really nitpicky here, but I, the, the, the thing, I just thought this whole thing felt a little bit forced. I didn't need this, but I'll leave it at that. It, it, it does wrap things up in a nice little bow, but definitely for those people that weren't fans, if you weren't fans of Fear State to begin with, this is an absolute miss. And even if you were fans of Fear State, this isn't a necessity. Great art, yeah, though. Would, great art, great art. Yes, and that's that was going to be my point. Like, uh, you know, if you're a fan of uh, Ricardo Federici, then I mean, that's the reason Certainly. you picked this up. Yes, that that that's that's the best thing about the issue, is that that art. It it is fantastic to me. That's the reason to pick it up. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, let's move on. Hardware season one number three, Silent Partners, written by Brandon Thomas. Pencils are by Dennis Cowan. Uh, Bill Sinkevich does the inks, Chris Sotomayor on colors, Rob Lee does the letters. Uh, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, I, I'm wondering <laughs> if we're on the same page. I'm, I, I, I apologize, but this is one where I, I just, you're going to have to go first and I'll try to skim read it. I never had time to read this. There are 17 titles and too many yeah, Batman okay. titles. And this goes to my earlier point and maybe it's all on me, but I skipped this title because I was, I wanted to read up. And read all my Batman, and this was one of the ones. This is the only one I never read. Okay, so here, this is by far the weakest of the three milestone titles, and that's not to say that it's not good or it doesn't have potential. And certainly, when we're talking Brandon Thomas, Dennis Cowan, Bill Sinkevich, Chris Sotomayor, we're talking about some very talented people. The problem I feel like is in the pacing of the story. There clearly are some ideas that Brandon Thomas has that it feels like he wants to get to, but he is trying to stay true to the origins of hardware as a character, just like static stays true to those characters and icon and rocket stays true to those characters. But it, this just feels rushed. It feels like it's, it's moving really fast to get to something um, and maybe at the end here, we start to get some ideas of what that might be. Maybe this book's going to become a little more political than, than it should be. Um, so 
I, I have mixed feelings. Like I, I want to like it more than I do, but we're three issues in, we're halfway through and I still feel like I'm not quite sure what this book wants itself to be. You know, is it a, a book where it's, it's a man on the run, you know, it, it's, it's hardware trying to escape from, uh, from Alva. Is it more of a, a situation where, you know, it's that Iron Man prototype where, you know, it's a guy in his armor against the world and he's going to um, become the hero that everybody needs him to be. Is it a political book with the machinations that are going on behind the scenes? Um, and, in, and when I'm talking about how we see it that toward the end, so basically we're, we're told at the beginning about Edwin Alva and his partner, Asher Sim, who founded the company that, that Asher, um, that Asher currently runs. And we're supposed to have some context, I guess you would say for, for what's going on. And, and we learned that Alva and Asher had a, a, you know, a falling out at some point. And that was when Alva went and uh, recruited Curtis Metcalf because it's implied that Edwin Alva was always sort of the business mind, sort of the cunning, stab you in the back kind of intelligence, but not actually the like tech expertise. That was what Sim did. And that's why he recur recruited uh, Curtis Metcalf when he and Sim had a falling out. And now Curtis is, is on the run, like we've seen the last couple of issues, and Alva's publicly saying he doesn't blame him for anything, for what went wrong, even though it everything has been framed to look like it's all Metcalf's fault. But behind the scenes, obviously uh, Alva's trying to kill him or at least capture him. And so when Curtis eventually goes and tracks down Asher Sim as sort of uh, a, uh, an ally at the end, it's all flipped around when Edwin Alva calls Asher Sim. For the, they talk for the first time in decades and Edwin says, you know, um, I'll give you the one thing that you said that I would never give back to you, which is the source code. That's all we're told. It's the source code. And apparently this is the thing that they had a falling out over. Like Sim created some sort of, uh, Asher Sim created some sort of source code. And apparently there was a disagreement with the way it was going to be used. Sim probably didn't want to use it for weapons. Alva probably did because it's a, he's all about money and power. Somehow Alva stole it, forced Sim out. And Alva said he would never give it back. Now he's offering it back if Sim will give up Curtis Metcalf. Meanwhile, Curtis Metcalf's working in Sim's lab, unbeknownst that these other two are even talking, with Alva saying, you have 48 hours uh, to give me Metcalf, or, and I'll give you the code. Or if that's not your answer in 48 hours, I'll just come and take Metcalf and you'll get nothing. So again, doubling down on sort of the corporate espionage, political machinations, of this whole book, but then we still have the superhero aspect. We still have the armor aspect. We still have uh, Curtis Metcalf's girlfriend and ex-wife and, and that there's just so much going on and it feels overstuffed and it feels like any one of these storylines would be enough if you let them breathe to be compelling and pull somebody in. But like I said, we're three issues in and I still, I still don't know what this book wants to be. Like it just, I feel like there's a little too much going on. So I don't know. 
it, it just, I want to like it more than I do. And, and maybe when it's all said and done, Brandon Thomas will manage to bring it all together, but it does sort of feel rushed at this point. Like maybe it, this is a 12 issue thing that, uh, is only getting six issues. Yeah. It's I mean, funny. Listen, the same thing when, uh, we talked to Andy Schmidt, right. About, yeah. um, about crime syndicate. And we've, and we've heard similar things from Brandon Thomas himself when he was on the show about having to cut things out that he wishes would be there. So yeah, yeah well, it's, uh, I, I got to tell like you more than I do listening to hear you talk. It's, uh, I, I'm definitely going to read it. I just didn't have time to read it, but I'll, I'll read it. It actually sounds interesting. I mean, it, I can tell you, even your synopsis sounds more interesting than at least three of the Batman books I read this week. So I, I regret not reading this first. I, I apologize to Brandon Thomas. It was it was just one of those things, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, frustrating week. But, you know, I will read this. I will read this. I'll give this. Yeah, I, I promise I'm going to win. I'll, I'll review issue four. I'll, I'll give some lip service to this issue as well when I review issue four. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious if it ends up working for you better than me. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Batman 2021 Annual Number One. This is written by James Tynan as well, uh, but Ricardo Lopez Ortiz also gets credit as a storyteller as well as the artist. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors. Clayton Cal on letters. And this is the end of the Ghostmaker story that we're getting as backups in uh, in the Batman title at one point with the whole Midas Island thing and whatever. I'm not a big fan of this art. You know, I, I said that from the beginning uh, when we were getting the backups, we get a little more of the background of, of Ghostmaker, a little bit about his parents and where he came from. Um, but the art is really messy. And I feel about this, the way that you feel about the um, Fierce State Omega. Like I never felt like the backups were necessary, although they were a little bit humorous and it sort of, was giving some context and characterization to Ghostmaker. But I feel like we didn't get much more context or characterization. Like th this didn't add anything for me. Like we had to have this, right? Because we had to get the end of that story. But the all the backups and this didn't feel necessary to me. Um, yeah. Like I feel like we could have somehow got the information that was, I think, the most interesting about Ghostmaker, the fact that he flies around in a plane and – He's sort of sexually debauched. We, we could have got that dropped in somewhere else because those are the interesting parts that, that gave us some context into the character of Ghostmaker. This battle that he has against all these, this gauntlet of supervillains on Midas Island, it just, it felt overwrought and unnecessary. Um, and, and this wasn't even as funny as a lot of those other backups were, even though, you know, part of the same story. The only funny part for me, the only line that really stood out for me was when he's talking to Batman because that's how we get the end of the story. He's telling Batman the story. And at one point, Batman's interrupted him and he says, quiet, Batman, you'll get distracted and drop a child in the fire. Yeah. Just listen. <laughs> that, that that was the only line that really got me. Other than that, it was forgettable. Um, I feel like I already sort of forgotten it. And yeah, the artwork was, was messy in my mind and, and didn't really work for me. So I don't know. Did you like it better than I did, Rocky? I, I was I, I was a little disappointed in it, but and the reason that the central reason for my disappointment is number one, it was it was very repetitive because this this flows this was this is the concluding saga of the Ghost Makers origin stories, really what this is, and we had a whole series of backups, uh, backup stories of Ghost Maker where he where where in each one of the Ghost Maker 
the the backups in the pages of Batman in the over the last six months, we we got the origins of Kid Kawaii, Razor Lion, Brainstorm, and the Instigator, and and Madame Midas, who are basically Ghostmaker's arch enemies. So we got the backup stories of their origins, and and in this issue, we kind of got a recap of their origins again. It was like we could have got the entire. What was the point of having those backups? You, we could have taken a dollar off the price tag of those previous Batman stories, and we could have just had a cool Batman annual with with the Ghostmaker story in it. And it just seemed like such a waste to me. And and even the 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 you know look, I don't mind Lo, Lopez uh, Ortiz on on the art. I think uh, I, I think it's um uh, it's got that anime kind of feel to it, which I'm not normally a fan of, but it grew on me. Uh, uh, Fajardo Jr. on the colors, I thought it, it worked well. Uh, I have to admit, I was a little bit confused with some of the action sequences. I didn't really exactly know what went on. I was a little confused in parts. So the art, you know, maybe it's just maybe it's just me not not accustomed to the art, but I wasn't quite. I didn't quite grasp exactly what was going on in every single panel. But look, the gist of it came through. But it does feel a little Duke and Machina because. This feels oversimplistic to me. The origin of Ghostmaker. Basically, the Ghostmaker, when he grew up, his dad owned owned a company that was taken over by Madame Midas's dad, and and his and basically Ghostmaker grows up to get revenge on Madame Midas because Madame Midas treated him bad when he was a kid because Madame Midas Madame Midas's father was the richest man on the earth, and Madame Midas became the richest person on earth after her father and because her father destroyed his family ghostmaker grows up to destroy her that's really it so it's a really really simplistic origin there's i mean there's there's nothing sophisticated about it at all it's very tropey and not only does he defeat all his nemesis i mean ghostmaker defeats every single one handily he de- defeats his greatest enemies he defeats them all kid kawaii razor Lane, brainstorm instigator madam midas and to top it off while he's fighting them he makes a couple phone calls reports her to 20 interpol agencies across the globe and all her assets are seized and she's no longer broke or she's no longer rich and so it's a complete destruction of his enemy i mean this was duke Ek machina and Almost to the point of really, I don't think even Batman's ever defeated his enemy that that completely before. This was an abject humiliation of Madame Midas. It actually took away some of the agency of Madame Midas. She was actually kind of an interesting character, I thought at first, but she ends up being just a one-note sort of boring, ra- rampaging, like almost maniacal, foolish female that that lacked any kind of potential. Uh, agency on her own here and I think some opportunities were lost all in some vain attempt to make ghost to prop ghostmaker up when you didn't have to we already know ghostmaker's extremely inco- uh, extremely competent we know that from batman but this storyline actually makes him almost a little bit too over the top I think so I I don't think this served the character as much as Tinian hoped it would and that's all I got to say about that yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, more Batman, because, yeah, like we said, over 17 books, over half of them Batman. Uh, so next up we have Detective Comics uh, Annual 2021, The Meager Man, A Shadows of the Bat Prelude from writers Mariko Tamaki and Matthew Rosenberg. Oh. David Lapham does the art, colors by Trish Mulvihill and Lee Luffridge, letters by Ariana, Ariana Mayer. 
Uh, this was sort of forgettable. Yes, it is a Shadows of the Bat, which is supposedly the next big Bat event that's coming up next year. It is a prelude to that. It even says on the end, beginning in Te- Detective Comics 1047, Shadows of the Bat, a weekly Detective Comics event beginning this January. We also see Dr. Chase Meridian in this issue, although she doesn't, if you didn't know, if she didn't actually say what her name is, you wouldn't recognize her because she didn't look what, like what she looks like in the other book that we talked about. Um, but it gets me wondering if this is, if these two issues that are coming, are these her first appearances, I wonder? Did she ever appear back in the 90s? I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, this this story basically is about this guy who is the son of somebody who Thomas Wayne saved, who had taken a bunch of hostages and then jumped through a window and right in front of Thomas and Martha Wayne and, and Bruce Wayne as a child. And even though he had killed people, Thomas Wayne saved them. And then it was a lesson to little Bruce Wayne about, you know, you save the people that are in front of you. Years and years later, his son, who has all kinds of mental issues based on the fact that his dad was all jacked up, um, is, is having some problems as well. And they ultimately ended up, end up taking him again to that new Arkham tower rather than locking him up. And there's a lot of politics in here with the police who want to throw the guy in Blackgate and, and lock away, lock him away forever. And, and Nightwing's more playing the role of, you know, being far, far out to the other side saying, you know, locking up these people isn't the way to go. You know, they need help. And then, you know, Bruce is somewhere in the middle um, sort of remembering that lesson that he learned from his dad so, so long ago about, cause if, at first he's a little more on the side of the, of the police and he's a little harsher with this guy. Uh, and then he tells Nightwing at the end, yeah, you're, you know, I remember the lesson my dad taught me, save the people that are uh, in front of them. So what exactly this means for shadows of the bat? Is it just all about chase Meridian and, and Arkham tower or whatever? I don't know. Um, but again, this was just sort of a, a forgettable story. Like I, uh, like when I started flipping through it to talk about it right now, I, I was like, wait, what was this about? And I had to flip through the pages before I even remembered. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So <laughs> without the seeing the, the art and having it jog my memory, I wouldn't have been able to recap this. So clearly not that impactful, but maybe it'll mean more and have more context once Shadows of the Bat uh, starts. I don't know. I guess we'll see. What'd you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah, this is, I, I like the, I actually like the theme here. I liked uh I'm always big on the metaphor and the theme. And I like the idea that, you know, the, the lesson that Bruce Wayne remembers, one of the lessons that Bruce Wayne remembers that his dad taught him was as a doctor, he says, I don't choose who I save. I save the victim in front of me, which is exactly what you said. And it ends up that Peter Foss is a serial killer. And it just so happens that uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne with young Bruce are walking down the street one day. And it just so happens they come across Peter Foss trying to escape from the police. And he jumps out of a, Broke, he, he jumps through a window and he ends up getting cut, his arm getting getting severed. And Peter Foster is a serial killer who would die. He would bleed out on the street. But Thomas Wayne saves him. So he saves this serial killer. And this serial, serial killer, Peter Foss, believes that he is, uh, he believes that blood is a sacred right. And uh, he says, you know, he likes to rob blood banks and he believes that people who save blood are devils. And so he's cra- crazy. And I couldn't help but notice that in... Uh, in uh, artist uh, David Lapham, the way that he draws his Peter Faust, he almost looks like he's got a grin, just like the Joker. He reminds me a little bit like the Joker. And at first, I thought maybe that was was that intentional. Was this meager man sort of connected to the Joker? But I, I don't I don't believe he is. But in any event, 
the idea of you treating the 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 patient who's in front of you chase meridian is here is is in this is in this issue as you indicated she is a big proponent of arkham tower that might be called pennyworth tower at some point and the idea is you know to bruce wayne's a big proponent of that as well to sort of save the people that you can and that it's about saving the people who are right in front of you and to batman that's the people of gotham city when you save the people that are right in front of you, to him, that's saving Gotham, your, your average Gotham citizen. And of course, Batman goes this step above. He also ends up saving all the, he ends up saving all the villains too. But I like the idea that all of us, we all save the victim in front of us. We all do, we all do our part. I mean, Chase Meridian, she's a doctor. She saves her patients. If whatever we do, whatever field we're in, whether it's the service industry of any kind or a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or a welder or whatever we might be, we serve the person who comes to us for help. That's what we do. So the lesson here, I think it's very good. And we are, we are all our brother's keeper and our sister's keeper. And I think that's, that's what I like about the message of this story here. And it makes you feel good because Thomas and Martha Wayne, once again, another reminder that Bruce Wayne has really good parents. And despite the trauma that made Bruce Wayne Batman, he always had that upbringing, those formative years with two very good parents. And that's ultimately what uh, uh, puts Bruce Wayne, uh, even as Batman, on the side of angels. And... I, I thought it was good. As far as leading into Shadow of the Shadow of the Bat, uh, the prelude to Shadow of the Bat, I'm actually, I I don't know if I'm that interested in it. Where I don't know what the storyline's really going to be. A lot of this stuff we've already seen before. Uh, we're introduced to the Forgotten, uh, the this group of children that consider themselves they call themselves the Forgotten, and they they befriend the meager man, this Peter Faust. This reminds me of the strays. I mean, Catwoman in Alleytown, she's got the strays. They follow Catwoman. And now we got another group of children in another part of Gotham called the Forgotten. And they're going to follow Peter Faust. It just, see, it seems like this has kind of been redundant. Haven't we done a, ver a variation of this storyline already? I know that that's common in a Batman comic, but this feels a little bit like we've, we've already, we just so recently treaded this. I don't know how Shadow of the Bat's going to feel any different and we'll have to wait and see see what marika tamaki does with it yep uh okay moving on we have teen titans academy number eight from writer tim sheridan mike norton is the artist hi-fi on colors rob lee on letters uh i gotta say i vastly prefer rafa sandoval's art mike norton his art is just not dynamic enough for a superhero book uh in my mind especially one with so many different characters but there's a lot that happens in this issue uh and I'm going to let Rocky take it away and okay. see what his thoughts are on it. What do you think, Rock? Okay, I'm just... Woo! I got prepped in time here. Well, I'm happy to report that I did, in fact, read this comic. It's funny that you say that a lot happens in this sh issue. I actually have a big... I only got one page of summary notes on this comic. And uh, on big, bold print at the bottom of that piece of paper, I, ha I have the phrase, a big nothing burger. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I summarize this comic. Now, let me explain that because you're right that a lot does kind of happen in this issue. So why do I call this a big nothing burger? Well, because we kind of already knew what was going to happen. We kind of already knew that that we, we knew that at some point the the students of Gotham, uh, pardon me, Teen Titans Academy, Gorilla Greg, Marissa's brat girl, and th that they were going to be using the H style. We knew from the Future State Teen Titans Academy that they were going to they were going to steal Miguel's hero dial H for hero dial to try to resurrect Roy Harper, 
And by and we we know from Future State that they were going to attempt to resurrect Ree Harper, and that was going to go terribly wrong. And I think the assumption was that the reason why it would go terribly wrong is because Roy Harper isn't really dead. So who exactly are they resurrecting if they're not resurrecting Roy Harper? And how does the H-Style even work? And can the H-Style mess with the dead? And that somehow would contribute to the unkindness and to all the destruction in the future. And wow, we had all these questions we don't know. Plus, we don't know who Red X is. So it was kind of like, we know that Future State's kind of going to be messy. So now we get this issue, Teen Titans number eight. And sure as heck, yes, they steal... They, Gorilla Greg and Marissa, Brat Girl, they, they steal the H-Style and they're, they're trying to use it. And, well, they don't actually, nothing happens. They don't actually use it. The, the, the bulk of the issue is the Flash drops off the twins. Wally West drops off Jay and uh, Irie, his kids. He wants them to join Titans Academy. Okay, that's good. I'm actually glad to see that because I think, because one thing Titans Academy needs, it needs more familiar characters because once again, and, you can accuse me of being an old guy with a fading memory because that's probably what I am accurate, but I, I'm always trying to trying to remember who all these new characters are and eventually maybe they'll become second nature to me, but I still find myself searching for the names of most of these students in Teen Titans Academy. And so it's good to see Jay and Irie going to be joining the Teen Titans Academy. Meanwhile, Miguel's being distracted. They steal the H-Style. Dane uh, is, uh, we know Dane is kind of still a little bit off his rocker and possessed and he's trying to hit on, hit on the Flash character whose name, unfortunately, I also forget. Um, Raven is talking about the vision she had about the unkindness. So she's referencing the vision she has that we know what happens because of future state that ultimately it's going to destroy the, the, the future. And so she has all these visions. She's got visions of Dane uh, killing P, killing one of the students and and what I what I find extraordinary is out of nowhere, Red X just shows up. He doesn't attack anybody, but he just shows up. And interestingly enough, he's actually drawn looking like a teenager. Now, this is a, a character who we don't know who this character is. We know this character can't be Roy Harper because Roy Harper also shows up out of the blue. So they're trying to resurrect Roy Harper with the H-Style and they fail. And then Miguel intercedes. And fortunately, apparently, they'd never used the H-Style correctly. And so nothing came of it. So nothing came of it. Miguel got to the H-Style before because they used it wrong. And so they never activated it. But then Roy Harper shows up anyway. So absolutely nothing came with them attempting to use the H-Style. <laughs> so all that was, it was nothing. It was a nothing burger. That's the nothing burger. The H-Style did nothing because they used it wrong. It was a giant, giant, mist, total nothing burger. And Red X here? Seems to be a nothing but Red X shows up out of the blue, talking, trying to recruit the students to what? Join him and go where? He's a teenager. I don't care if he's got Batman level intellect. Why would they go with Red X? I'm not really buying buying what this. I'm not sure exactly where Tim Sheridan is trying to take this story, but it just seems a little bit absurd to me. Uh, Starfire. I mean, all of them. They're they're all afraid of this teenager. I mean, who the hell is this teenager? I mean, even Wally West, you know, he's he can think, he, you know, Wally West is is warned not to try to take out Red X because Red X is prepared. And so Red X is going to be there and he's prepared to take out all the Titans if they try to stop him by give from giving a speech to the students. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm just, <laughs> this whole thing just seems so off to me. And I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really getting what, uh, what is Red X 
trying to to do here? Uh, Red X shows up, gives a speech, and then leaves. And I don't, uh, I I don't know. Uh, it, it, the whole thing just. I'm not really sure exactly where this is going because now the future state thing with the H style, that's kind of a nothing burger. We know that's going to go nowhere. And so we know Roy Harper shows up at the end. Okay. So now that Roy Harper shows up, all right, well, there's a big statue of Roy Harper in front of the school. So he's the the inspiration of Titans Academy is now alive. So what now? So And, and Red X just shows up, gives a speech and then leaves. Okay. I, I'm not sure. I wish I had some idea what Tim, where Tim Sheridan was, was trying to take this story. If I even had an idea, maybe I could get more invested in it. But it's hard for me because this seems like it's going all over the place. And we got a bunch of nothing burgers. That's, I don't know. Do, do you feel different? No, I, that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. I, it sounds like to me, Rocky, you want some answers. Yeah. You want some answers? I want some answers too. We're eight <laughs> issues in, right? We have all these different plot threads. And and you're right. Like we haven't gotten all we get are more every issue, more questions, more questions, more questions. And as far as Red X showing up, I, I think he must like literally count pages in his script and literally put a big <laughs> red X in the corner and say, Red X hasn't shown up in X amount of pages. Let me put him in here. It's exactly what we said we didn't want at the beginning, the very first issue of this, when we said, if this Red X thing drags out or he just pops in and out here and there for no reason whatsoever and just drags out the mystery, it's going to get old real fast. Well, it's starting to get old. I'm interested in these characters. I want to know what's going on. I, w- I want to know more about, the- other than the couple of Gorilla Greg-focused spotlight issues that we got with him battling his uncle, Gorilla Grodd, we haven't learned that much about any of the rest of the characters, all of the characters stealing Miguel's hero dial H dials just felt really shitty to me to do that to, to somebody. Yeah. Uh, I get that. You, okay. Well, we want to know how it works. It's not yours. You don't just go steal <laughs> stuff from your friends and hook it up and modify it and whatever. It, it's, it was, it felt shitty. So yeah. yeah, we, we, nothing's happened. Not enough answers. I, again, I think Tim Sheridan has a plan, but, it's it's in the execution. Like I, I don't, I, it's not paced correctly. Like, give at least you have to end some plot threads at some point. You got to give people a reason to keep coming back. If you just drag every plot thread and and throw in you know subplots and subplots and subplots, but you never get any answers or anything, people are going to just get tired of it. Like you know what? I'll tune in a year from now um, and get caught up, or I'll just go read it on on the internet or watch a YouTube to find out what happened because I'm tired of reading and reading and reading and not getting any answers. So yeah, it's, it's exactly how I felt when I finished reading. I'm like, man, we're eight, we're eight issues in and nothing's been resolved. Instead, we just get more subplots. Like now, now we have Roy actually there at the Academy named after him and we get Wally showing up wanting his kids to go to the Academy. So again, more threads when we haven't resolved any of the other the other one. So yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. And I just want to say that there's, I don't know who, who is this character that I'm looking at here with is with, with the talking dog Libowitz Libowitz. Is she primer? Is, is this? Is yeah. This yeah. Yeah. Character? Primer. So yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. So my, my, um, that's not, that's not actually primer. Primer does show up 
in another one of the in one of the early ones and she she's in her own um in her own YA that my daughter keeps bugging me that I, I need to read. Um, cause she's read it. Like she's a dreamer or something. Is her name dreamer? Or... So I can't, I'm looking, I'm trying to find her name. Cause yeah, she whistle. I'm whistle. And this is whistle. Leibowitz. Okay. Um, so she's just, yeah, she's just, again, she's another student at the Academy that we know next to nothing about. Well, I just, I just want to say the criticism again. And, and again, I, it's a broke, I'm saying it sounded like a broken record. I've said this before about this title. We should have we should have the the names of these characters underneath the characters when they appear, right right from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to be referenced when we we're going to be reviewing Justice League Incarnate number one uh, coming up in this in this video. And uh, one thing Joshua Williamson wisely does there is that he's got the name of all a multitude of characters. He's got the names of the characters underneath them as as we're meeting them. And I still say we should have that for Teen Titans Academy because I do think Tim Sheridan is assuming too much in the reader. And uh, I guess I'll just leave it, you know, and that's my opinion because I, it's, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to strain or, or have to look back at a comic to find out who these characters are. Well, that's the problem. We have no context. How can you remember who somebody is when, you know, they've only showed up for a panel here or there? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Uh, all right, moving on. Justice League Dark 2021 annual number one from Ram V and Dan Waters. Uh, Dan Waters handles the scripting. Ram V and Dan Waters both are on the story. Christopher Mitten does the art. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Rob Lee on letters. I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about this. Uh, I didn't like the Christopher Mitten art. Um, it just, it's, I, I, I don't know. I just didn't like it. The style, it, it, it didn't have enough detail for me. The line work. Like, I, I feel like when you draw the curve of somebody's face, like, it's not a straight line, but it, it shouldn't be, like, wavy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it yeah. should at least be a smooth line. Like, but I, I don't know. So the art just didn't feel up to par for me. And, you know, we've been saying that Justice League Dark deserves its own title instead of just as a backup in the Justice League. So I appreciated that we got a big story here. We got a big chunk of story. We got basically a recap of everything that's been going on in the justice league dark backups with Merlin and whatnot. Uh, and then Mr. E shows up and they end up having to make a deal with the devil, so to speak, which at this point, pretty tropey. Like I'm, I'm sorry. Usually Ram V I, I gives us stories that I really, really enjoy. And I guess maybe there wasn't any way around of it being tropey. Um, but deal with the devil, literally, you know, like he, Zatanna's going to know better than that, and but but she doesn't. But th the other thing about it was, as long as this backup's been going on, and I really enjoyed it, much like we had the conclusion of the Ghostmaker story, I, I I saw this, I was like, oh good, we're going to get the conclusion of the, um, of the Merlin story. Like I, not that it's been dragging on too long, but I want to know. But instead, at the end, after she makes this deal with Mister E, after she makes this deal with the devil. It doesn't even say the end. We don't get the end of the story. It says the beginning. So how long is this going to drag on? I know. And and is Justice League Dark going to get its own time? Because I'm, I'm sorry. I like the story, but getting it like five, six, seven pages at a time in the back of Bendis' Justice League is, is not – it's not cutting it for me. So I appreciated that we got a big chunk of story, but sort of like Teen Titans Academy – we got a recap and then they made this deal with Mr. E and that's literally all that happens in the issue. That, that is it. Uh, so yeah, it left a little to be desired in terms of 
can we move this story along a little a little more? And again, I, I don't necessarily blame blame Ram V because I certainly feel like if he was getting full issues instead of a third of an issue every month, maybe we would have the end of the story by now. So, uh, but but that combined with the art that I really didn't care for made this uh, a little bit of a miss for me, um, unfortunately. What do you think, Rock? I, I I really hate to say it, but I think that uh, this is going to be the nail in the coffin of people. <laughs> if this is if this is the deciding factor for whether or not people collect Justice League Dark, they're not going to be collecting Justice League Dark. The art, the cover is fantastic. The cover is just eye-catching. Beautiful cover. But uh, this was a significant miss because the, the Justice League Dark, the best part of the Justice League title was the Justice League Dark backups. But instead of having this Justice League Dark annual, they should have taken all six of those backups, which were eight pages each, and have a 48-page story. That would have been fantastic. Also, the substance, the actual story in this annual could be summed up in no more than six to eight pages. You could have had a 50, 50, 60 page annual that could have covered all the backups and what happens here. The only thing that happens here, we get a summary of what we already know, except the only difference is we have this Mr. E show up and 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 he's a, and it's a, it's a fascinating character and it's kind of kind of funny and cool because he walks backwards. He got, he got, this Mr. E character is an enemy of Constantine and he pissed off some cosmic being. And so he finds himself walking backwards through space time into the, into the now, into the present. And he's basically warning them that, you know, he's got a piece of Merlin, he's got a good part of, he's got a part of Merlin's good soul because Merlin has, has been corrupted because Merlin went into the afterlife and uh, stole some nepenthe, what they call nepenthe, which was uh, a liquid which deadens pain and strife and destroys lands. And Merlin's going to use this liquid to de- to dest- to aid his destruction uh, that that we know is coming from future state. And um, so, really, all we the the only way that they can defeat Merlin is is to infuse the better part of Merlin's soul back into him. And so Mr. E makes a deal with Zatanna and Mr. E just says, look, I'll give you, uh, because I walk backwards through time. I'm, I walk in the future. I, I walk backward and I picked up, I saw Merlin's soul before I saw his battle with Kuga Khan, uh, which where he lost a part of the good part of his soul. And I ha- happen to have it. I'll give you Merlin, good part of Merlin's soul. Uh, and on the, and I'm going to make a deal with you. When you defeat Merlin, I want you to give me Merlin's, uh, Merlin's ruby or whatever he has. Uh, and that's the deal they made. Now, it's another example of they're making a sort of a deal that will, they may have to, it's going to cost them in the long run. Uh, but, you know, they're dealing with one crisis at a time. But that really is it. And so that, that it really just ends with them getting a piece of Merlin's soul that they're going to use to, to defeat Merlin at some future point. This was 42 pages. This was way too long. The art was serviceable at best. I hate to say it. 42 pages long. 10 pages were wasted on Wonder Woman going in, telling a story about her walking into Tataris to, to, to discover to discover uh, this Nepenthe, this, this wa- the waters are forgetting. There's so much of additional baggage here in this story that Ramvi didn't need to add. We don't need this extra superfluous, more magical side journeys of these characters. We don't need that. I think Ramvi is overcomplicating the story. There's so many moving parts as it is, and it's interesting, but I fear that he's 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 kind of lost the readers a little bit here. He's lost me a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of know what's going on, but 
you know, it's frustrating. I got to tell you, man, it's it's telling when I when I when I do notes for these reviews, and when when my Venn diagram starts to look like an architectural drawing, I mean, then I know that maybe these plot lines need to maybe you know pull them back a little bit. But again, I'm still in this for the long haul. Uh, but I I do think that he bit off. I, I think he just sort of there's there's too much exposition here. This is a wasted issue, and I think this could have been handled better editorially. This should have just been one annual with all of the backup, the content of all of the backups and this story in one. Yep, agreed. Uh, okay, up next, this is a big one. Justice League Incarnate number one. This is another one of those titles we feel like really need to pay attention to because uh, this, you know, this is the future of the, the DCU, supposedly, with Joshua Williamson at the helm. So this issue is written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Brandon Peterson handles the art for pages one through five and 13 through 17. Andre Bresson handles the art for pages 6 through 12, 28 through 30. And then Tom Derenick does pages 18 to 27. <laughs> uh, Hi-Fi is on colors. Tom Napolitano's on letters. The art is pretty solid throughout. Uh, I didn't have any problems with it. Would I have preferred if one artist had done the whole thing? Well, yes, of course. But it is big. It is bombastic. The colors are great. And uh, yeah, I just I really enjoyed it. Dr. Multiverse makes her first appearance. I imagine there'll be a few people that are picking this up on spec, hoping to uh, cash in. I think it's a way too early to say whether that'll be worth anything, but uh, overall I, I enjoyed the story. It does feel very much like it's following right on the footsteps of, uh, of infinite frontier and Joshua Williamson. He's, he's winning me over. I don't know exactly what he has planned. I hope when the DC universe comes out the other end, it's a little cleaner than it is right now because, you know, we talk about these continuity issues all the time and they're not that big of a deal, but everything does feel a little bit like a mess right now with, you know, it used to be you had just one earth, uh, you know, after crisis on infinite earths, and then it was 52 earths and now it's back to being a multiverse. And then we find <laughs> out it's an omniverse, which is a multiverse of multiverses. Um, it's getting out of hand a little bit. I wouldn't mind if they, dial it back. I mean, I understand editorial why they do it because then you can say every story matters, it all counts. But as we've said before, if everything counts, then nothing counts. Nothing has impact. Like what are you supposed to pay attention to? Anything can matter. Nothing matters in a way, you know, it's, it's you, there's such a thing as too much of a good thing, uh, I guess we'll say, but, but overall, I really enjoyed this. Um, I, th I actually thought the Brandon and Peterson art was the best of the three. Um, but the color work is is solid throughout and uh, very primary, which gives it that very classic superhero feel. So uh, I do feel like the, the colors by Hi-Fi were, were a highlight of pulling it all together and making the art seem, even though when you look closer at it, you can clearly tell it's not the same sort of style or line work, but uh, the consistency of the colors makes it work. Um, so yeah, I, I actually enjoyed this. I, there was never a time where I was reading Infinite Frontier where I was excited and looking forward to the next issue. It was just always like, okay, spent the first three issues wondering how are all these different disparate plot threads going to come together. And then when they finally did, it was a bit underwhelming. Uh, I didn't feel that way with Justice League Incarnate. Like I, I understand, I feel like I understand the direction that this is heading now. We've got an interesting new character. Uh, we've got plenty of the Thomas Wayne Batman and the Calvin Ellis Superman for fans of those characters. And I, I don't know, it, it's working well. It, it's, I think the pacing in this is much better than uh, 
than Infinite Frontier any of those those issues were. So overall, I was I was a pretty big fan. I I really enjoyed this. What'd you think, Rocky? I agree. Uh, full props to Joshua Williamson. I've given that guy a hard time on Flash for 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 all those years, and I've you know and but I got to tell you, man, he's he's done a good job with Infinite Frontier. At least he's made me happy. Justice League Incarnate here. He's done a good job of actually simplifying simplifying what is going to lead into the next DC Crisis event. And of course, the ongoing criticism of DC Crisis events is that, oh, they're too damn confusing. They're, it's hard to understand. And oh my God, another DC Crisis. When is this all going to end? Well, this this issue starts off, I mean, what I love about this, this issue starts off on Earth 8. And for those who don't know, Earth 8 is that the Marvel Universe is what the DC Universe considers the Marvel Universe. And instead of the Avengers on Earth 8, you have the Retaliators. And instead of Instead of Avengers Tower, you got Retaliators Tower. You got the big R on top of that, the, the Retaliators Tower, right on the top panel of that one of that, that opening page. And of course, you got instead of the Avengers with Captain America and Iron Man and Thor, you got you got Red Dragon, American Crusader, Deadeye, Wonder Jin, Big Baby instead of Hulk, <laughs> Silver Eagle, Machine Head. These are the characters that Grant Morrison had a lot of fun with in Final Crisis, or pardon me, in Multiversity. And uh, what's interesting about the Retaliators is that uh, it's on Earth 8. And ironically enough, the the Retaliators hate the multiverse. Machine Head, uh, Machine Head, uh, along with the Retaliators, they all voted and they they basically sided with the Psycho Pirate. They want they wanted to work. They sent Machine Head to to work with Psycho Pirate because they want to. They hate the multiverse because there's always a multiversal event. They're they're always being attacked. So the Retaliators of Earth Eight do not. They 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 want to shield themselves from the rest of the multiverse. Ironically enough, this Doctor Multiverse, this character, she uh, she is from Earth Eight. And she discovers Machine Head's uh, head, and she's there. And Doctor Multiverse, she uh, she can look at somebody and see the different versions of themselves. So if she looks at Superman, she looks at Calvin Ellis at one point, and she she sees all the multiple versions of Superman. She can look at uh, Flashpoint Batman and see all the multiple versions of Batman throughout the multiverse. And Doctor Multiverse has something in common with Darkseid. There's only one of her. There's only one iteration of Dr. Multiverse. She has no iteration in other multi in other universes. Just like Darkseid unified all the the universal multiversal aspects of himself into one being, there's only one Darkseid, there's only one Dr. Multiverse. But Darkseid's very powerful. We don't know ex- exactly the extent of, of Dr. Multiverse's power, but we know that she's going to play an important role. There's a Thanos character here called Tataris who ends up invading Earth Eight because he's looking for the he one of the things he's looking for is the crack in the multiverse because Darkseid's looking for the crack in the multiverse because what happened in Infinite Frontier is Darkseid utilized Barry Allen the Flash to crack open uh, a hole in the multiverse and the idea is to is to is to uh, pull into the multiverse what is behind the crack and that behind the crack is the great darkness. And if you think of classic DC lore, the great darkness saga, the great darkness is the void. It's, it's what's, it's what's behind, it's what's behind the, uh, the, the multiverse. And they want to, uh, uh, it's the focal point of all evil. And the great darkness lies dormant on the other side of the crack. And Darkseid wants to bring that in 
But Darkseid, before he does that, Darkseid needs to take out Tataris. So for those ever wondering who would win in a battle between Thanos and Darkseid, this is as close as you're going to get because we're never going to see a Marvel and DC team up. So you're going to have to enjoy it through the analog of the Tataris character here. And surprise, surprise, uh, Darkseid snaps his neck. But meanwhile, Avery Ho, who is uh, Barry Allen's sort of protege, another Flash character created by Barry uh Joshua Williamson, she's recruited by Calvin Allison, and the Flashpoint Batman who approach her and she works in conjunction with Dr. Multiverse as they trace, as they trace, try to locate the crack of the universe of the multiverse and they need to locate the crack and utilize the powers of Dr. Multiverse and Avery Ho, this new Flash who is, whose energies, she's from Earth Zero. So she's got special, she's got a special vibe frequency that she can vibrate at that can seal the rift in the hole along in conjunction with the powers of the Dr. Multiverse. So, but so much happens in this issue. It's awesome. They get to Earth 8 and they're attacked. They, they got to fight the Battle of Tataris. Tataris is battling Darkseid. And then they, they got this grandmother, grandfather box that's flying around distracting them. And the retaliators are pretty much, most of them, I don't know if they're killed or they're injured. And and it, it ends with Darkseid victorious. But just... But they managed to to they managed to move the crack. So, Doctor Multiverse and Avery Ho managed to they managed to uh, keep the crack out of Darkseid's hands. But Darkseid will use the grandfather box to locate it. And so this this multiversal this crack in the multiverse is going to reappear in different parts of the multiverse. And so what I suspect we're going to get is we're going to get the these characters throughout the next few issues. Traveling in different parts of the multiverse, as dark, trying to prevent Darkseid from getting control of the of of taking advantage of this crack and 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 into the seeping great darkness that will permeate the multiverse. I'm loving this. This is fun. The characterization is great. I love the dialogue. I love the art here is fantastic. Even though there's different artists on here, Andre Brizen, Brandon Peterson, and Tom Derenek, I think their art sort of bleeds together quite well here. I love the epic, but the battle between Tartarus and Darkseid. This is just a fun battle. Joshua Williamson, you can get, has a lot of fun. You can tell he's having fun scripting this. I'm enjoying this. This is just fun, 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 man. Tell me what you thought about it, Jace. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's it's a lot of fun. It's compelling. Um, anxiously awaiting the next issue. So, uh, all right, let's move on to uh, to Wonder Girl number five, Homecoming Part Five. Joel Jones as the writer, Adriana Mello on art, Jordi Belair does the colors, Pat Brosso on letters. As we mentioned, first issue of Adriana Mello as the artist here, and and yeah, I feel like she's trying to imitate um, Joel Jones' style rather than just using her own style. Really thick lines here, uh, and it. As, as we've said so many times, thick lines don't lend to a lot of movement. So I didn't feel like it was the best art. That being said, I did enjoy this issue of Wonder Girl more than I've enjoyed any issue because I felt like we finally got some, uh, some Yara Flora characterization. Um, she gets sort of tired of, of being taken advantage of in a way and sort of uh, defies the, the gods and goddesses, if you will, and and wants to break out, go back home, be, be left alone to do what she wants to do. Meanwhile, back on earth, uh, Cassie Sandsmark wonder girl is, is meeting up with, um, another member of, of a tribe called Esquacita, which apparently is the third 
Amazonian tribe. And this is all going to lead into the trial of the Amazons because apparently none, no issue of DC comics that comes out today can do anything but lead into, uh, to something else. So, um, is this too little too late? You know, you were talking about too little too late for justice league dark. I kind of feel like maybe it is. I, I sort of feel like I don't hear anybody talking about the wonder girl title at all. Uh, they had a lot of delays. I, probably because Joel Jones was writing and drawing it. That's probably why we got Adriana Mello to do this issue. So be curious to see if Joel Jones comes back to draw anymore, or if she's just going to be writing it. Um, and does anybody even care anymore about Yara floor? I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, what did you think Rocky? Well, uh, you know, I, I think Adriana Mello, she, she should probably stick to her own style of art. It, it's it's pretty good. She does actually a decent enough job imitating Joelle Jones, but that you know doesn't doesn't quite nail it. But does a fairly competent job. I'm still I, I don't understand uh, Jordi Belair. Did she run out of time? I I don't understand why your these great fight sequences. We're just getting a bunch of different shades of orange. Uh, it's uh, as opposed to why not just show off and have beautiful colors showing Yara Floor fighting, and I so. I'm I'm a little disappointed in that. I I saw the same thing in the, in issue uh, I think Wonder Wonder Girl issue four. There was like f- the color green. There was a two page spread showing the origin of the third tribe of the Amazons, uh, and it was all in a shade of green. I I thought that was sort of a missed opportunity for Jordi Belair to show off her colors. But in any event, I'm uh, I have issues with the manner in which this story is told. It's if I was to tell this story to somebody who wants to know the origin of your floor, I would make it sound better than the way it comes across and the, the way it's executed on the page here. And I say that with great respect. It's uh, Joel Jones is, is getting the message across. I mean, basically Yara floor. I mean, I, I got to say Yara floor knew well in advance that she was going to go to Mount Olympus and be trained by and be and be trained and and to basically be one of Hera's I guess glorified bodyguards she was told that all she was told that by by Herms or uh and or she, so she or pardon me by Errol she was told that so for her to feign surprise and decide that she's not going to drink the ambrosia liquid because Hera is a bitch or a queen bitch I mean come on like she already knew that. So Yara suddenly showing some some of her own independence and being and, and refusing to drink from it and grabbing a sword, it just seems really forced. Like it, it lacked verisimilitude for me. She, she knew exactly what was going to happen well in advance, and for her to pretend now that she surprises nonsense. Uh, so that never worked for me. I also Cassie Sandsmark ta- talking with Paturi, who is Paturi is a member of the Brazilian tribe of Amazons with Cassie Sandsmark uh, talking with Paturi and, and not being aware that there's a third tribe of Amazons, seeming she was shocked to hear there's a third tribe of Amazons. I don't understand how stupid Cassie is. Wh- who did Cassie think she was talking to? Uh, seriously, I mean, it was obvious. I, I I thought when Cassie and Artemis were given their missions, when Cassie was given her mission by Queen Nubia, and when Artemis was given the mission by Queen Faruka II, to go and to, to confront Yara Floor, I thought weren't they told and filled in on that that this was a third tribe of Amazons that Yara Floor is important. By the way, Jace, why is Yara Floor important? We, we still no don't idea. know. We we have no idea. We still don't know who 
Why are we supposed to care about Yara Flora? Now, I do. Be, I care about her because she's a cool-looking character. She's. I like her attitude. I, I love the fact that she's got an attitude and she's. She can be very difficult to deal with. That's kind of fun. I don't mind that. I don't. You know, I, I don't mind that in her character. It's a nice change from Diana Wonder Woman. But again, I, I just. You know, all these wasted conversations between Cassie and Paturi and, and Herms and and these these protracted fight scenes that don't move the narrative forward, I find very frustrating, quite frankly. But again, it is moving uh, ever so slowly. We get the death of Jerry, her her flying horse, who she calls Jerry. And um, Akahim is the name of the city of the Equ- of the Equisite, where the Equisita Amazons live. Akahim. So we learn that. Um, you know, just that a long... Per- and it, it's revealed at the end that the, the Brazilian tribe that of Amazons, the Equiz- the Equizita, they apparently want to attack the Mascara because uh, they got their reasons. They're preparing to attack the Mascara yeah. and Donna Troy is their yeah. secret weapon that they want to use. And well, I did, why is Donna Troy working with the... or the Equisita, we don't know. There's all kinds of question. Apparently, there's been a neglection of duty that has occurred, and that there and that the Equisita Amazons are the only ones to scale the the balance the, the to scale uh, the balance right. And we don't even know the origin of Yara here adequately enough. And then we're going into this tri- trial of the Amazons. I just feel that this is this is. Uh, I wish this was a little bit more clear. I really hope it improves in the next few issues before we get into Trial of the Amazons because I I just feel a little that there's too many holes right now in this picture. Yep, I agree. And and you're right. I'm glad you put it that way. Uh, the Equisita are going to attack Themyscira for reasons because that's all we know, for reasons. They have, they have reasons. We don't know what they are, but they have reasons. So, uh, all right, moving on. Nightwing 2021 Annual Number 1 from writer Tom Taylor. Cian Tormi and Daniel HDR on pencils. Cian Tormi, Ralph Fernandez, and Daniel HDR on inks. Rain Barreto and John Kalis on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Yes, that's a lot of artists. Frankly, it shows. The art is, is really inconsistent. At times, it's really, really good. And at other times, it feels like animation style, like Looney Tunes animation style with almost no detail, especially in the, in the faces. And the backgrounds are almost non-existent so the art was was inconsistent for me um didn't didn't work uh although the colors i thought were were pretty solid and consistently done uh very well throughout as far as the story itself i mean it was pretty fun to see nightwing and red hood team up both in the past and in the present uh so that was that was a lot of fun Uh, i know some people were bitching at tom taylor online about um Red Hood not using guns anymore, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, that happened a long time ago. You're, you're complaining about the wrong guy. It wasn't, it clearly was an editorial driven decision. Uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with it. Um, and, you know, there's going to be people that, that don't like it. And hey, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, in this day and age, it's probably not that responsible to glorify using guns in a, in a comic. It just, it is what it is. You know, I'm sorry. There's plenty of other comics you can go and read if you uh, th- that don't come from DC if you want to read about people using guns and shooting people. Uh, but I don't feel like books that are from you know a big publisher like DC they have a lot of kids that read them should really be 
having heroes or protagonists. You know, I don't know if you call Red Hood a hero, but protagonists, it's using guns. So, so I didn't mind it. Uh, I, th I thought it was a good change. Now, him choosing to use a crowbar is kind of dark, you know, the fact that he got killed by a crowbar from Joker, and that's why he's deciding to use it is, you know, that could be problematic in its own right. But um, for the most part, I, I enjoyed the characterization. Uh, I enjoyed the story, Clayface sort of being hired as a, like this mercenary to uh, impersonate Red Hood. All that story uh, made a lot of sense to me. Um so yeah, overall, I thought this was a, a win. Does it rise to the level of those early issues uh, of Nightwing that Tom Taylor and uh, God, who's the artist? I'm totally drawing a blank right now. Um, does it rise to the level of those? Uh, who, who's the Redondo? Bruno Redondo? Redondo. Does it rise to the level of Bruno Redondo and Tom Taylor's early Nightwing? No, it's it's not that good. Um, but again, I guess that just goes to show you the last three issues of Nightwing where it's tied in with Future State, we complained about him not being that good and maybe not giving as much credit as we've given Bruno Redondo because his artwork has been amazing and we've been shouting him out every time we've covered one. Maybe even we didn't realize just how important the style of art and the visual narrative and visual storytelling is doing, how much that brings to the tone of what Tom Taylor's doing because maybe that's what's missing here. Maybe that's what makes this Nightwing annual good but not great. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, artwork's a little inconsistent, color work great, and uh, and overall, I just it, it it's a winner for me because I enjoyed the interaction between Nightwing and Red Hood in present day as well as in the past, but mostly in in present day. That's when it really was the best for me. Plus, I think the main cover is fantastic. So, what do you think, Rocky? Yeah, I like it. I, I like the fact that uh... good night. <laughs> Kiss my daughter. Good night again. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I like the fact that, you know, Dick Grayson trusts Jason Todd. At the end of the day, Jason Todd has had a very speckled past in the Batman family. He's the black sheep of the Batman family. And Dick Grayson even at one point says to him, it was in one of the flashback scenes that, you know, I, that he, he says, I'm sorry that Batman, you know, has made you feel small at times by propping me up, by putting me on a pedestal. Because it, it might be fair to say that, you know, maybe Dick Grayson is is Bruce Wayne's favorite Batman. <laughs> or at least, you know, I think Batman has a special place for Dick Grayson in his heart. And uh, and uh, Dick Dick Grayson takes it upon himself to apologize to, to Jason Todd at one point, saying, you know, I'm sorry if, if Batman ever used, made you feel small by propping me up. And and then the fact that Jason Todd is the prime suspect in the death of this uh, Mr. Lineker, uh, who was killed by, uh, by a Red, Red Hood lookalike, uh, you know, Dick Grayson tells him he meets up with Jason Todd and says, I believe you. I, I, and he says, just like that. And Nightwing says, just like that. And why? Because you, you, you don't up to it. Now take off, take your top off. He said, and let's get to work. And that's what they do. And th these are guys that are brothers. These, I mean, you know, they've, they've had their brotherhood. I mean, it's called blood brothers, this storyline. And they've had their, they've, I mean, they fought alongside Batman. They've been trained by the, trained by the best of the best. And they've also, know what it's like to be in a semi-dysfunctional family and perhaps a very dysfunctional family, depending on your view of the Bat family. And so these guys work well together and they know each other. And that's why this is an enjoyable story. If, if you're if you're a Nightwing fan, you'll enjoy this. And if you're a Red Hood fan, you'll enjoy this too. It, we, it's very common. This week we're getting eight different Batman titles or, or Batman-related titles. It, 
Uh, and so this might get drowned out, but this, this was a good story. This was a good, uh, this was a good Nightwing annual. My criticism of it has nothing to do with the story. I just, I personally wish that this annual would have a, would have had a story more related to what Tom Taylor is doing in his storyline in, in the mainstream Nightwing title. Cause this is, this is more of a distraction and it's a nice story, nice enough story. Uh, but it's one that if if you if you just want if you're enjoying Tom Taylor's Nightwing, you don't you really don't need to get this you it, to enjoy what Tom Taylor is doing with respect to the current storyline in Nightwing. But uh, all in all, it's pretty good, and the, the the multiple artists on this annual I think work together quite well. Yep, I agree. Uh, okay, let's move on. We're going to talk about. Robin 2021 annual number one next. Joshua Williamson's writer, Roger Cruz on pencils, Victor Olazaba on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, I won't go so far as to say this was the best issue of, of Robin. Uh, you know, last time we, we sort of learned about the, her, what, Damien's grandmother's plans were for the for the demon head and whatnot, and, and this actually takes place before that. Uh, this and there's even an editor's note that says it it takes place um, after issue six. And I just sort of wish we'd gotten this sooner um, because it's I agree. really really good. Yes, uh, and we get a bunch of background into various characters that are taking part in the Lazarus tournament, especially Flatline, and it it makes me care about these characters more, or at least. You know, like we were talking about with Teen Titans Academy, at least when they show up on the screen, I have or on the page, I have, uh, you know, context for them. Uh, even Ravager, who's somebody we already know, at least I'm given context as to what she's doing in the story. Um, so, you know, again, maybe it was a paper delay issue. Maybe it was pushed back for other reasons. We don't know. But having this come out sooner would have added more context to the Robin story and I think would have been uh, beneficial. Uh, and then, of course, we do have a little epilogue with Raz al Ghul looking younger than he has in quite a while, actually, um, that says, follow Talia's adventures in the pages of Ra of Batman, Robin, and Deathstroke Incorporated, and don't miss Shadow War coming in 2022. So some other big – we got Shadows of the Bat, and now we, we've also – we're told in several books this week that there's a Shadow War coming as well. Uh, must have something to do maybe with the League of Lazarus and League of Assassins fighting amongst themselves. I'm, I'm not really sure. So, um, so yeah, I thought this was really, really solid. Again, it, it would have been better to have it sooner to tie in with the, the narrative. Um, and also the Roger Cruz pencils, I thought they're not, it's not quite as loose or a dynamic as Gleb Melnikoff's uh, artwork, but it's a similar enough style that it, I think if you threw this annual in a collected edition with the regular issues of Robin, that it would work. So uh, what'd you think Rocky? Yeah, well, basically, uh, you know, speculator alert. This is the origin of Flatline. This, that's what, that's what's, what makes this stand out. It's a lot of fun. First of all, the cover is fantastic. The cover is bright pink. I mean, I can't believe I'm liking a bright pink cover, but I mean, let's just uh, a bright pink cover that almost looks like a teen magazine. You know, so it it it, it captures the fun that we've had with the Robin mainstream title so far, and this. This basically gives us the origin, a protracted origin of, of Flatline, which with her with meeting up with Lord Deathman, her grandfather being a former work, a former KGB agent who is experimented upon and acquires the ability to get the abilities of people who die. 
and ultimately she inherits those powers from her grandfather, terrifies her family. They, they, Flatline's own family sort of abandoned her and she ends up ending up in the, she ends up being tutored by Lord Deathman who basically trades Flatline off in order to get some Lazarus blood to maintain his own health and integrity. And then Flatline ended up on uh, the, at, in the Lazarus tournament. That's her origin. And it's a lot of fun. The, the, it's, it's, yeah, it, like I said, I agree with you. This should have been told before. It, it would have been, this could have come out like probably two or even two months ago, or at least a month ago, would have probably had a little bit more more attention as opposed to being drowned out in the middle of uh, uh, this annuals week. But in any event, it was, uh, it's not just Flatline. We got the origins. We, we found out some additional information, not a heck of a lot more. We found out some more information about uh about uh, Black Swan, XXL, Drenched, Ravager, and and Hawk, and uh, but we still don't get. It. What's interesting here is what what is a character we don't get information on, and that's Respawn, which is kind of funny. So we get uh, at one point, Damien is going through the is looking through the a database on all the the characters that he's fighting, and he reads up uh, on quite a bit. Uh, he reads up on a lot of them, and uh, interestingly enough, one of them is even Richard Dragon Jr. I didn't know Richard Dragon had a son, so that's interesting. There's a lot of very interesting things behind the scenes here that I'm curious to see how they're going to play out. But in any event, uh, we got Black Swan, XXL, The Drenched, uh, and but nothing about Respawn. And Respawn is sort of a ripoff of, of Deadpool and Spawn, and uh, it and yet... I don't know. I guess I guess Joshua Williamson thinks that we care about respawn. God damn! I I'm kind of curious as to who respawn is. I'm actually more curious about who respawn is than I am Red X. I tell you that much, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. But in any event, I had a lot of fun here. People who have been enjoying the Robin series, I really think they're going to want to pick this up because this is a lot of fun too, and it's a nice supplement, particularly with Robin number six, as the editors know. Editor's note makes clear. And also, uh, not that people are really loving Bendis' uh, checkmate, but Talia Gall is now the new, Le- is the is now once again the leader of Leviathan coming out of checkmate. She confronts her father, Raza Gall, at the end of this, and that will be leading into Shadow War, as you already mentioned. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, we get that same note in, in uh, the villain special we'll talk about in a second, too, but. Yeah. Uh, anyway, on to another really, really big highlight this week. It's second issue of Tom King and Greg Smallwood's Human Target. Tom King's the writer, Greg Smallwood's the artist, Clayton Cowell on letters. Smallwood handles the colors himself. Man, is this title just – it's so fantastic. It's timeless. Uh, I, I, we talked last time in the first issue about the pop art feel of Greg Smallwood's art. Um, it's black label, but it doesn't – it doesn't matter because it easily could fit into, into continuity. Although I suppose if human target dies and somebody else wants to use them, that wouldn't necessarily work. But you know, since when has death ever stopped anybody? Uh, we get just some wonderful interaction, some wonderful character work, both visually and narratively between uh, human target, Christopher chance and ice here where uh, her origin. And, and I don't know, correct me if, if you know, Rocky, we get a new origin for her that's a little bit darker than anything we've seen before, and it came as news to me. I don't know if that's actually something that happened. We were told her first origin about her being this this princess, and I thought that was still her her um, 
official origin, but I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Well, yeah, but. that changed a little bit in the '90s. Yeah, so I mean, Tom King gets gets the gist of it right. I mean, honestly, yeah. I would have to go back and look, but he gets the gist of it right. I, I think I'll let well, I'll let you finish, but I, I think he did a just he just such a great job here. I mean, I just I just love this. It just this is just a I'm just a just a great comic book. I love the art. The art's fantastic, and there's so many little things, like when Christopher Chance and Ice finally kiss, and then he, there's a little curl of, like, smoke that comes out of his mouth, you know, like frost, yeah. because she's cold, and, and you <laughs> yeah. know, he can see his, his breath, even though they're out swimming in the ocean, because it's a warm day, you know, because he kissed her, little things like that, little things like the title, chapter number two, We Cry, which is actually the label of the bottle of Jack Daniels that uh, Christopher Chance... And, Christopher Chance is too cool for school in this Mad Men-esque sort of way, but I'm sorry, Christopher Chance wouldn't be drinking Jack Daniels because that stuff's just gross. I, I would hope that he would drink a better quality of whiskey or bourbon than that, but it's it's a small nitpick for sure because overall this characterization, the mystery, everything we get is is fantastic. I mean, do you or do you not get like this really cool 60s bewitched vibe from the cover oh, absolutely uh, and it all starts from there and that the charm of that carries all the way through the issue and then right at the end right at the very end tom throws us for a little loop with just one sentence and i'd get a chance to see up close the woman who might have killed me so throughout this yeah. charm and building of the uh relationship between christopher chance human target and and ice uh and then come to find out Christopher Chance may have been one step ahead of her all the t time. And maybe it's actually ice who poisoned Christopher Chance in her attempt to poison Lex Luthor. And to yes. me, I mean, I know we're only on issue two, but to me, that seems like a very Tom King thing to do that. That'll be my prediction there, right? Like they're totally going to fall in love and ice is going to end up being the cause of death for this guy who, should have been the one, you know, like, and, and she'll just be racked with guilt and, and whatnot. If Christopher chance does it indeed die, but it just seems like, you know, she was trying to give Lex Luthor his comeuppance, what he deserved for the, you know, what he had done to her in the past uh, and, and the pain that she'd caught, you know, he, he killed her basically. Lex Luthor was indirectly responsible for the death of ice. So why wouldn't she, yeah. you know, get her vengeance and then come to find out she kills this other guy who could have been somebody she could have, you know, could have brought happiness back to her life. It's, it's sublime. It's beautiful. The, the little quirks in it that really bring it home in, in the Greg Smallwood art. I can't say enough good things about this book. Um, and if it came out on any different week, it would certainly be my book of the week, but it gets beat out ever, ever, ever so slightly. But, uh, but what'd you think, Rocky? <laughs> I, I, I love this. I, I think I missed reviewing the first issue with you, but uh... yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I absolutely loved the first issue. I thought it was I thought it was great. This continues. It, it it matches the tone of that, but but even even in a more heightened sense, you, you nailed it with the bewitched uh, analogy. I mean, boy oh boy, it's just great. I love the scene where uh, Ice and uh, Christopher Chance are walking on the beach, and she he talks about skipping skipping rocks over the ocean when he was a twelve year old boy. And she she crushes and she creates a, a small little sliver of ice for him and almost looks like a, a, a small round piece of ice glass. And he, he skips it across the ocean and he, and he draws the analogy that when he was younger, he, you know, he, he didn't have great parents. And he felt when he was younger and skipping rocks in the ocean that he, he could have died when he was younger. No one would notice. 
and he alludes to the fact that even now as an older person, he no one may notice when he dies even now. So there's an element of tragedy to Christopher Chance and and there's you know, you can't help but love Christopher Chance and feel for him because here he is, he's got eleven days left to live, and he's with a beautiful woman. And uh, he's taken away by her beauty. I, I mean, there's a scene where she comes out and she's wearing the bikini and he's like, and he says, Jesus to himself. I mean, because she's just beautiful. And of course, Greg Smallwood, you couldn't get a better artist to render it. Just fantastic. And, you know, Ice, there's some compassion with Ice. And and I, I really hope she doesn't end up being the murderer here. I, <laughs> you never know with Tom King, right? But uh, uh I don't. I hope that she's not. But she. There's an innocence with Ice, and there was always that perception that Ice was always the the softer side, and Fire, her part, you know, the her friend Fire, who was probably the far more obvious candidate for the the, the potential murder potential murderer of Lex Luthor or attempted murder of Lex Luthor. But this really plays off well here, and you know, it, it makes reading this issue makes me realize how much we need a human target comic book in the DC universe. I I want more of this. I, I want more of this sort of, I want this guy investigating all kinds of things in the DC universe. This is interesting. I love this interaction with ice. If this can be pulled off with ice, imagine all these other characters that we just think we know, we don't know a lot of that we can get. Uh, I just, I really like this. Uh, I, I wish this human target, I, I know it's just this, I, I think it's, I don't know if this is a four or five issue series or whatever, or 12 issues, right? Yep. 12 issues that, of course, yeah, 12 days left to, to live, 12 issues, but I'm, I'm loving this. And this is, it's, it's between this and another comic, my favorite of the week by far. And I'm just going to say again to DC, man, all that Batman and easily this this easily defeats all the batman titles for me uh this week uh there's another title that i like that i'll, I'll put with a tie with with human tar- target but we'll get to it but I, I i thoroughly enjoyed this i agree with your assessment yeah i agree way better than any of the batman titles and that's not to say any of the batman titles were bad this is just better this is something yeah. new and fresh so yeah uh, but speaking of which we can't be off batman for long so now let's talk about the joker 2021 annual number one Matthew Rosenberg and James Tynan are the writers. Francesco Francavilla does the art and the colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. El Mal Duerme Bien. Um, I, and I don't even know what that means. Um, something about <laughs> yeah. death, I think. A, a, good, a good death, maybe. I, I didn't Google it. I was going to Google it, but I ran yeah. out of time. Yeah. So basically, much like the previous uh, Francesco Francavilla title that we had with Joker, this one uh, is a flashback. And it's all about early on Joker, Gordon sort of fallout. Gordon's cleaning up the precinct. Uh, he's been working with Batman for quite a while. Gordon's been in, in town for you know long enough to, to get a lot of the costume criminals off the streets. And uh, a lot of the everyday crime, muggings or whatever, they're all to a, down to a point where Gordon feels comfortable starting to get rid of some of the corrupt cops on the Gotham city uh, payroll and that sort of backfires and the Joker shows him the way that's going to backfire in a very interesting way with a pinata um, to sort of follow up on that Spanish title, I guess you'd say. So this felt very in line with what uh, Francesco and Tynan had done previously on the Joker. But I even said when they did that one, that it felt out of place with the story that we'd gotten. So 
it's not that I mean this still feels like a Jim Gordon story. Don't get me wrong, it's not going so far as to bring the Joker title back to um you know series that stars the Joker. This is still very much a a Jim Gordon story, but I just don't enjoy these as much as the narrative in the present day with Gordon chasing after the Joker and trying to figure out what's going on with all the conspiracies and different uh, machinations behind the scenes. Um, these are just context stories that they're okay, but they're just okay. Mm. And again, the Frank Avia art sort of suits it because it's crime noir in a way, but you know, I, I vastly prefer Frank Avia on things like, um, uh, well, Night of the Ghoul that he's doing at Best Jacket with Scott Snyder for a Comicsology original. It's a horror title. It just suits his style much better in my mind. So I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I'm going to say something that is, I'm probably going to sound a, a little bit hypocritical here because I've been defending uh, Tinian uh, and I'll, I, I think this is the first time Rosenberg teamed up with him on the Joker, but I we've been talking before how you know the criticism of this entire series leading leading into the this annual is that you know it's not a Joker story that it's it's Jim Gordon, and I I think an argument could have been made in every single issue that that Joker was 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 prevalent in in and behind the motivations of every character in every story and. However, this was this this annual. I had a really hard time accepting that this was a Joker comic for some reason. I can kind of see it uh, because it was like even I'm starting to think, "Oh, come on, Tanya!" And this was the, 42 pages, only four page. I counted them. Four pages have the Joker drawn on them in 42 pages. Now, uh, that's. Now again, this is about police corruption. This is a Jim Gordon story through and through. The the, the highlights of this story had nothing to do with the Joker. Uh, uh, now these were good highlights. I the the highlights for me of this issue was when I it's obvious and it's so subtle that Jim Gordon knows that his daughter is Batgirl. He's watching Batgirl. He's watching Batgirl fight Catman alongside Batman on top of the hill and Bat Batgirl falls and he panics and he tells the cops to go help her out. And it's obvious because, you know, he doesn't come out and acknowledge it openly, but it's obvious that he knows she's Batgirl. He he has he has private moments with Barbara, his daughter, where she's she's got a black eye and she's injured and he, he won't tell her he knows she's Batgirl, but it's obvious that he cares. But she they have a disagreement he knows that they fundamentally disagree on how to confront crime. He knows his his own daughter is a vigilante, and he's a he's the commissioner for God's sakes, and and he doesn't confront her on it, but he's there for support. And yet at the same time, he's a shitty father in many ways. He's a shitty father to his son, kind of, you know. He's not a good husband, and that really comes through here. And again, this is an amazing Jim Gordon story. It is. It's very well. I think it's well done, but. I will say that more so than the others, this was a this was not a Joker story. The Joker just at the end. This was basically Jim Carud, Jim Gordon flushing out corruption, uh, firing five Gotham City police officers for corruption, and they all, in a fit of revenge, go and work for the Joker and try to take out Gordon. Gordon defeats them, and the Joker ultimately ends up at the end killing the informant that that told Gordon who the corrupt officers were. That's essentially the story. But the heart of the story for me was watching Gordon interact with his with his 
with with Barbara, and just again that commentary about his life and about his the, his you know his I guess his lack of <laughs> his lack of of greatness as a father and as a parent. But in any event, I um. I, people who have had issues with the Joker are going to continue to have the same issues with this because this is a Jim Gordon story. But guys like you and I who appreciate the character of Jim Gordon, maybe more so than others, will we're going to be far more forgiving. Well, I looked up the title, Evil Never Sleeps. Uh, wait. Okay. Evil, I'm sorry, it's Evil Sleeps Well. That's what it, that's what All the right. title is. Evil Sleeps Well. So, uh, very appropriate for the story, you know, with the, the corruption and when Gordon fires all these people, they go to work for the Joker. So uh, the Joker's just biding, biding his time, you know. Um, evil is sleeping well uh, in the yeah. story because it makes a lot of sense where, yeah, crime's down because they wanted to lull Gordon into a false sense of security and have him do exactly what uh, what he ended up doing. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a solid story, but you're right. People that are fans of the Joker probably are – getting pissed off. Like, come on, when are we going to get a Joker story? <laughs> this is a Gordon story for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, we're not going to cover these stories individually because there's just too many of them, but I'll read off all of the, uh, all the creative teams. And then maybe if, if myself or Rocky wants to mention one or two. So this is a Gotham city villains anniversary giant. Again, it's a hundred pages. We get a penguin story called bird cat love from Danny DeVito. Yes. The actor Danny DeVito, he's the writer. Dan Moore is the artist. Tamara Bonvion is the colorist. Troy Pateri does the letters. There's a Scarecrow story called The Fearless Man by Wes Craig. He does the story and the art. Jason Wordy does the colors and World Design does the letters. A Poison Ivy story called oh, Let me see if I can get this right. It's, it's a scientific name of a of a, a mushroom, a fungus. Ophiocordycepis lamia, I think is how you pronounce it. It's by G. Willow Wilson, the writer. Emma Rios is the artist. Jody Blair does colors. Hassan Otsman Elhow on letters. Raza Ogul does uh, a demon's game story written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Ricardo Federici, uh, Federici is the artist. Sonny Go does the colors. Uh, uh, Saida Temofanti on letters. Then we've got a Talia Al Ghul story called The Second Eye written by Nadia Shamas and Joshua Williamson. Max Rayner is the artist, John Kalis on colors, and Troy Petrie on letters. A Red Hood story, uh, and not Jason Todd Red Hood, but the old school Red Hood, as in the Red Hood gang, For the Sky is Red, written by Stephanie Phillips. Great art by Max Fuamara, and he handles the colors. Hassan Atzman Elhow on letters. Mad Hatter story called The Perfect Fit, written by Dan Waters. Skylar Patridge is the artist. Marisa Louise on colors, Rob Lee on letters. And we finish it off with a Killer Moth story, the, the biggest of all Batman rogues, Killer Moth. The Happiest Man in Gotham by Marguerite Scott. Uh, Ariella Christiana is the artist. Trish Mulvihill does the colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, and there's a bunch of pinups as two that are really well done. There's a cover by Lee Bermejo, a penguin by Frank Quietly, but, but a ton of them. There's a ton of covers. So if you're a fan of the rogues of Batman, this is the, the, the book for you. Thank God there's not a Joker story among here, and there's no repeats. So at least we're getting a few other stories in here to give some spotlight to some other characters. I, the Danny DeVito story I thought was fine, although it didn't really make much sense to me. It felt like he was writing Catwoman is as much a part of that story as Penguin is. They're together, you know, I guess playing off the whole um, Batman Returns movie that Danny DeVito was in, but it certainly didn't feel like either of them were villains, <laughs> very much heroes in the story. Yeah. Um, the Poison Ivy story, uh, again, very important because it says at the 
it gives some context to where po- Poison Ivy's at in her head right now, maybe after she's been got her two halves reunited at the end of the Fear State. But it says Poison Ivy's story blooms in 2022, and that made me the, be the most important thing we get out of the Poison Ivy story. That we're going to get a lot more Poison Ivy coming in uh, in the next year. Uh, like I said, that Red Hood story, the Maxwell Moore art is absolutely fantastic. But for me, the one that stood out more than any of them, uh, I like the Talia Al Ghul story. Uh, and again, much like the Poison Ivy story, we're told that we have more of, of Talia Al Ghul to come um, in the pages of Batman, Robin, and Deathstroke, and Shadow War coming in, in 2022. So um, I feel like we're getting a different Talia. Like She used to be very shrewish in her characterization. Like I used to not like her. She wasn't very likable. And I feel like over the last five or six years, she's become a more likable character. Um, maybe as they've tried to turn her into a little bit of a, an anti-hero or make anti-hero, make her more relatable. I feel like that's one of the things that DC has succeeded on. Um, and then I got to mention the, the, uh, the Rosal Gould story as, as well, you know, much like I was saying the great Ricardo Federici art in the, Fear State Omega, we get great Feder, uh, Ricardo Federici art in this too with Philip Kennedy Johnson and Batman and Ra's al Ghul discussing philosophy of of battle over a chess game. I mean, it doesn't get more Batman Ra's al Ghul than that. So uh, again, if you're a fan of Batman villains, you probably want to pick this up. But uh, I just I have a hard time telling anybody to spend ten bucks on a comic that's just a bunch of stories that some you're probably going to like and some you're probably going to think are just meh. So I don't know, maybe pick it up and flip through it and and uh, decide which ones you might want to pick up. Uh, any of the stories you want to shout out, Rocky? Uh, well, for me, uh, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Talia al Ghul. And she's the one that I find the most interesting, her and Roz. I think Talia al Ghul, uh, especially, uh, especially right now in the DC Universe, Talia al Ghul is, is, has the most... Uh, prominence and agency that she's had in a very long time, both by being at the forefront now of Leviathan. And she also happens also to be a member of the Justice League totality in the, in the Justice League totality satellite. So I'm not sure how that continuity is a little wonky. I don't know how she can both advise the Justice League as, as a member of Justice League totality and also be a member of Leviathan, a criminal organization on Earth Zero. So I, there's something wonky there. But aside from that, I mean, she's... Uh, thank God she replaced Mark Shaw. I mean, good God, who the hell wants Mark Shaw as a leader of the Leviathan, right? So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I really love the art. She looks sexy as hell in, in this. I'm not, I'm not sure who the artist was who drew the, the, the Talia Golem, but I, I really like, uh, I guess, oh, well, here it is. Uh, I guess John Callis on the art. Yeah. Nah, he's a, he does, he did the colors. Oh, sorry. It's oh, so, so Max Rayner. Yeah, Max Rainer. That's okay, right. Okay, yeah, very well done. Very well done. Um, yeah, that that's that that's the best for me. I I'm not a fan of this these Gotham City villains. I, I don't like these compilations. I uh, this is probably one of the better ones. It probably in terms of maybe the bang for your buck. Uh, but I I want to I want to be diplomatic with my words because this is a gorgeous cover. You got choice of multiple covers here i suspect that even though we're giving this thing short thrift in our review it's only because we got so many to review and we never had a time to get into the weeds on all the stories and i apologize to those listening for that i i suspect that a lot of these stories might have more prominence and more relevance moving forward in the dc universe uh only because they seem to 
there's something about these stories. They, they, they could, they could be referenced in the future. So a possible speculator alert on this particular issue. So I might be picking this up. I'll just pick the, my favorite cover because I have a feeling that you never know with some of these, some of these, like the Danny DeVito story is off the beaten path, but I don't know. And you've mentioned this before, Chase, about the inconsistencies with DC. We'll, we'll get some of these compilations of stories and we'll get a crazy out there story from an from an actor who played the penguin uh, alongside a story like the Talia Razo Gold story or Poison Ivy story that might have a lot more impact in the mainstream DC universe proper. So there's an inconsistency there. I wish editorial would work out those kinks, but I guess they're trying to overlap those two worlds in a vain attempt to, to get those two worlds to meet. But in any event, uh, I, I don't, this wasn't my this wasn't my favorite, but I I, I like Talia Gala. That's my favorite story, and I'll just I, I'm not gonna review, I'm not gonna say anything about any of the other stories. Yeah, again, I totally agree with Rocky. If there wasn't 16 other books this week, we would go story by story. But you know, now we're adding in eight more, and we just don't have the time. Um, so, yeah, again, flip through it. Maybe it's your uh, your particular cup of tea. Maybe it's not. I'm going back and forth. I didn't order it, but I thought, well, you know, I always buy Lee Bormejo covers. Maybe I'll buy it. Then I saw it was 10 bucks. I was like, ah, do I really want it? Now, I, I don't know. It's going to be one of those things. I'll, I'll pick it up when I get to the shop and just, you know, hold it in my hands. And does it speak to me? And that'll determine whether or not I, I get it or not. All right, we're going to skip over and go to the last book because I have a feeling the one next to last is probably one we're going to want to talk about a little more. Uh, so we'll talk about Wonder Woman 2021 annual number one. From writers Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Andy McDonald does the art. Nick Filardi on colors. Pat Barroso on letters. This was a really weird book for me. Um, we get some great characterization and wonderful context for the friendship of Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, and Etta Candy, which I thought was great. But we're introduced to this new character called Altum, who seems very strange. He's got this real pale complexion clearly out of place. What doesn't make sense to me is the fact that Etta Candy's military and her spidey sense doesn't go off. And even when Altum tells her things, tells her straight out, she goes, I don't know. He says, I'm the last survivor. This is somebody who knows Wonder Woman, you know? Uh, and she goes, no, 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 you mean you're an introvert. No, no. He means exactly what he said. He's the last survivor. Why don't you <laughs> want to find out what he's the last survivor of? Pay no, attention. No, no, that's, not, that's not what you mean, you weird-looking albino, pink-eyed. And I'm not saying like al- albino pink eye. I'm talking like pink whirlpools of energy behind sunglasses guy. Like what? <laughs> it, she comes across as so dumb in the story. Like it makes no sense It in a world with Wonder Woman and all these – crazy aliens and supervillains or whatever, some strange guy shows up and her danger sense doesn't go. And she even says later to Wonder Woman, she's like, yeah, he was kind of creepy. Well, then what, if you knew there was something off about him, why were you saying, oh, you're not the sole survivor. You're, you're, you mean you're an introvert. (laughs) No, he means he's the last survivor. What is he the last survivor of? He's the last survivor of the people that used to live on Paradise Island or right under Paradise Island under the water right offshore of Paradise Island before it became Paradise Island, before it became Themyscira. And apparently the gods, uh, when they created Themyscira uh, or recreated it, I guess you'd say, so the Amazons could have it, they just kicked these people out, kicked this race out or whatever the hell they are. Um, and just the, the Enki people, they're the Enki people. Yeah, 
Thank you. Uh, yeah. So so that's that's a pretty crappy thing to do, but not at all out of the realm of what we know the gods of the DC universe to do. But here's where the other part of the story where it falls apart for me. When he comes and confronts Wonder Woman about this, yeah, maybe he doesn't do it necessarily in the right way. He comes because he's weird and he doesn't, you know, English is not his first language or whatever, but I expect some compassion from Wonder Woman. And instead she goes from, <laughs> first of all, she, she's like, well, I don't believe you. Yeah. That doesn't, that seems very disingenuous, not the way Wonder Woman would act. It just seemed to me that she would ask questions instead of automatically assuming that this guy's not telling the truth, doesn't ever like, hey, hold my lasso and tell me. The truth. Like, this is not a one. She starts fighting the guy. This is not Wonder Woman. Who is this? I don't know who this is. The characterization for Wonder Woman is issue for me just didn't work. It, it She was so quick to want to fight this guy. I didn't understand. Did she get up on the wrong side of the bed? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But much like a lot of the other stories that we're talking about here, to be continued in Trial of the Amazons. Maybe that's part of what the Amazons, uh, the Themyscarians have to do. Maybe that's why the Escuda are mad at them. They stole their island. Maybe they have to go on trial. They don't deserve to have their island. Like I, like, I don't know. It seems like something big is being built up. And maybe with context, the story will matter a little bit more. But I don't know. I just felt more than anything like the characterization of Wonder Woman here, like the way she reacts to this guy. And maybe it's something to do with the guy. Maybe he's putting out something that gets people to, you know, act more militant or more confrontational. But it just seemed like with what he was telling her, like if you come up to Wonder Woman and say, hey, and, and even says, I know it's not necessarily your fault. You didn't do it. The gods did it. But we used to live on that island or right offshore of that island and they stole it from us. To me, Wonder Woman would be like, really? I might have my suspicions you're not telling the truth. Hold this rope. Now tell me again. Okay, I know you're telling the truth. Let's go talk to the gods. Let's go. She'd want to help. Instead, she wants to fight the guy saying, I don't believe you. Uh, I don't know. Didn't didn't work for me. I, I was baffled by the characterization of Wonder Woman in this issue. And it's so strange because Conrad and Clunan have done a great job. You know, may, maybe the pacing of the stories we've had some problems with or um, – or, you know, haven't felt like they're totally nailing it, but I never felt like they were completely 180 degrees the other way around with Wonder Woman not acting like Wonder Woman at all. But that's how I felt with this story. This, this did not feel like the way Wonder Woman would act to me at all. So for me, this was a big miss. Uh, didn't didn't care for it. So, uh, and I, again, I hate the rant. I'm not saying they did this on purpose. I, oh. And maybe I just don't have the context. Uh, and it'll, with context, it'll make the story make sense more. I, I don't know, but it just felt very, very strange to me the way that she reacted. So, man, I don't know. Did you feel differently, Rocky? No, I did not. I, I you, you stole my rant, Jace. I mean, I, I loved, I, I just wanted to sit back and just, uh, I was sip, sipping my tea as you're, as you're ranting and I'm loving everything I'm hearing. This is awesome. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I, I couldn't help but note, uh, but wonder too. It was like Wonder Woman. You got to bug up your chimney. A guy confronts you in a museum, and he has a debate with you, and you're clearly losing the argument. And then he antagonizes you. She pulls the fire alarm to clear everybody <laughs> yeah. else so she can start a fight with him in a museum. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, like, come on. And then look, look. This don't give me. Obviously, let's. I don't want to miss. I don't want to mislead people here. This Altum guy. He is, he is a jerk and he's, he's, he's aggressive in his own right. And he gets in Wonder Woman's space 
And so he's he's not a he's not Mr. Nice Guy. And he does take his jacket off, as su- suggest, and, and he takes almost like a little bit of a, uh, and they sort of they square off a little bit. So you know they they there's some there's some uh, aggression on both sides here, but. You know, where's the Wonder Woman who, look, I'm always complaining that Wonder Woman supplicates herself too much to her enemies. I Don't get me wrong. I, I kind of like seeing a little bit of aggression from Wonder Woman. However, uh, you know, again, it, it amazes me how writers completely screw this up all the time. I want Wonder Woman to be more aggressive. I love the line here where Wonder Woman says, <laughs> he when he says to Wonder Woman, I've prepared for you. And she says, funny, thinking you could prepare for me. I mean... There's some great lines here from Wonder Woman. So I'll give Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad some credit here. There's some good dialogue, some good verbal exchanges, a little, a little bit of banter back and forth, you know, a little, you know, feeling each other out verbally. I get it. That's all well and good. But, you know, the peaceful, the Wonder Woman's a peaceful warrior. So what Wonder Woman would do is, it's one thing to pull a fire alarm, but what Wonder Woman would actually do is just would say to him, let's go outside and talk. They could have walked outside and talked and they could have had a fight a fight scene in the sky. And we could have got some epic battle sequences. We could have had a little bit more, you know, we could have had even some greater battle sequences. We didn't have have this walk through a museum. It just seemed like a really odd choice to make. And like you said, it it I think in my view, it sort of took away from some of the the character of Wonder Woman, sort of sort of flew in the face here of of what we expect from Wonder Woman. And it sort of made her to be she made some really questions, some really stupid. I mean, she's they're fighting in a museum with priceless artifacts. Does this seem like Wonder Woman? All Wonder Woman would have to do is fly off. Now, in, this, in having ranted as I have, uh, f- following your beautiful rant, we should say in defense, or I guess as a counterpoint, Eltham did have a bomb planted in the museum, and he blew the museum up. So it might very well have been that Eltham would have blow blew up the museum anyway. So you could argue that maybe Wonder Woman's instinct in pulling the fire alarm was her wisdom of Athena coming through and she followed her instinct and pulling the fire alarm got, got people out of the building. But it just seemed kind of convenient that, oh, did you, how did she, you know, it's not like she knew he was going to blow up the museum. And I got to wonder, would he have blew up the museum if she had just walked out and taken the battle to another place? But in any event, uh, uh, we should allude to the factor. This is going into trial of the Amazons. I want to give Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad some credit here. I kind of like the political machinations and the geopolitical stuff they they got set up here. This is the en- Eltham is a survivor of the Enkai people who've got a territorial claim to the land upon which the mascara is is located, and he suggests that one of this some of the th- some of the Amazons of the three of the various three tribes of the Amazons might actually side with the Enki people. And so the trial of the Amazons might not just be a, a battle between Amazonian ideals amongst the three tribes, but it might also involve a legitimate land claim by the Enki people, which sort of raises the stakes a little bit. And I actually, I actually kind of like it. I, I've always kind of wanted and imagined a Game of Thrones epic story for Wonder Woman. I, I, I don't, I don't pretend that this is going to be on that grand a scale by any stretch. But I kind of like the seeds that are being planted here, notwithstanding a little bit of off characterization for Wonder Woman in this issue. So, I'm done. Yeah, and as far as as far as the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if she put his la- her lasso on, like I said, she would have known about that bomb a lot sooner. But yeah. anyway, uh, let's move on. Wonder Woman 
Historia, the Amazons, from Kelly Sue DeConnick as the writer, Phil Jimenez as the artist, Hi-Fi, Arif Prianto, and Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. And let me just say, no surprise there's three color artists here, because if you pick up this book and flip through it and look at the absolutely amazing line work and detail, it's no wonder that this book took three years to come out. This was first announced in 2018 as one of the original Black Label titles at WonderCon, uh, when they announced Black Label as an initiative, and they announced uh, Superman Year One by Frank Miller and, and John Romita Jr. They talked about Batman Damned from Azarello and Bermejo. They talked about this one, Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil Jimenez. Phil Jimenez, one of the greatest Wonder Woman um, uh, artists ever, uh, and, and wrote it at, at times as well. And then Kelly Sue DeConnick, her first time getting a chance to write Wonder Woman. Black Label, so it's out of continuity, but... They get to be more mature. They're not beholden to continuity. Tell the story they want to tell. Uh, and again, I know that Kelly Sue's been working very hard on this over the last three years. But when you look at the detail of the art, you can understand what took so long because there is not a single square millimeter of these pages that doesn't have detail from Phil Jimenez. It's absolutely spectacular. This Far and away, without question, my book of the week, maybe my book of the year. Um, I've been anxiously awaiting this. And I have to say, you know, sometimes you wait for something and wait for something and wait for something like we did with Batman Three Jokers. And ultimately, whether it's fair or not, when you wait for something that long, I, I, feel, I feel like, at least for me, my expectations start to go up because I've waited so long. And if it just turns out to be just okay or a pedestrian story, which I felt like Three Jokers was, I'm disappointed. And it, it's sort of on me because my expectations were raised. Um, but I can't help it. In my mind, it's just human nature. The longer you wait for something, the more you anticipate it, the more you sort of, uh, you know, want to see it. You want to hold it in your hands. You want it to be good. Uh, and this lives up. This exceeds that. It is it is so good. Um, and, and is it the story of the Amazon? Is it the, the origin of the Amazons that we know? No, it's not. It's something different and darker and more to do with gender politics and more to do with backstabbing and political machinations of the gods, which is a very Greek or Roman thing if you've studied your classics. And so I feel like this is exactly a perfect example of what Black Label is supposed to be. It's, it elevates the material. It's taking this idea of Wonder Woman and the Amazons and their ties to the gods and the whole gender uh, inequality that, in a way, is at the very heart of the character of who Wonder Woman is. And it's pushing it right up front in your face and saying, hey, the origin of the Amazons is very much wrapped up in that. And we're not just going to gloss over that. We're going to lean into that. And we're going to lean into it in a way that's achingly beautiful with this art, but it's also achingly tragic with the way that gender identity exists, both in terms of how it works for this story, but what we bring to it, right? I always talk about how you can really understand a society by looking at the fictions that they create, look at their make-believe, look at the stories that they tell. It tells you so much about what's important to those societies and what they're trying to comment on, um, maybe indirectly by what they focus on in, in the fictional stories that they create. This is exactly that. This is Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil Jimenez saying, yes, it's 2021. And guess what? Gender 
identity, gender inequality is still a thing and it shouldn't be. Why? Why is it still that way? You know, let's let's look back at the very beginnings and let's tell a story that's at the very heart of that with, I mean, I cannot stress enough how beautiful this art is. Um, and it would be say, it would be a disservice to what Kelly Sue DeConnick has brought to the story and Phil Jimenez has brought to the story narratively to say that the story doesn't live up to that art because it totally does. This is the perfect marriage of absolutely stunningly good artwork and really politically in a way charged. And I could see this being controversial and I can see some people hating on it or poo-pooing it going, God, I'm so sick of gender politics and women complaining about things aren't equal anymore. You know, and obviously it's probably going to, or, or things aren't equal ever. I shouldn't say anymore. They've never been equal. And I can totally see it being guys, right? Like I hate to, to throw you under the bus. Uh, I throw myself under the bus along there with you because I used to be much more, uh, or less aware of, of the inequality that still exists when it comes to gender roles, right? And if I'm tired of hearing about it and you're tired of hearing about it and hearing these women complain, then how the fuck do you think they feel? living their entire lives and it still is not fair. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, am I tired of it? Yeah. But I also recognize that doesn't matter because I'm not a woman and I don't have to deal with that persecution and inequality. I'm tired of it for them. And if I'm tired of it, then I can't imagine how sick and tired women must be of it. So I'm sorry if it's in your face and I'm sorry if you don't like it because it's controversial and it's, it's throwing the inequality of gender right there in your face, but that's the point of it. And, and to me, that's what is going to make this book transcend just being an incredible story and an incredible comic with great art. And I'm very curious to hear what you had to say, Rocky, because I know <laughs> you get kind of touchy about the whole uh, gender stuff oh, that yeah. Wonder Woman stories throw in your face sometimes. So uh, this is far and away my, like I said, my book of the week. Um, it's just, it's, it's wondrous. It's, it's incredible. This is exactly what comics should be. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, I will be singing its praises for a long, long time yeah. and I'll shut up and let you go. <laughs> well, uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'll, I will be doing a separate video in reviewing this because there's so much to talk about. There's This is so rich in terms of its topics and how it, and, and, and what Kelly Sue DeConnick is saying in this story. I also, I, I listened, to, she gave an interview to John Citrus on Word Balloon where it was just an amazing interview. It was a really revealing interview where she talks about her work and, 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 and just how she approached uh, this, this particular topic. And, and, uh, and she, she basically wants to give gravitas to the, to the, to women, to, to the Amazons. And she doesn't want to make them perfect. In fact, she, if she said where, where this story departs very significantly from Charles Molston, the creator of Wonder Woman, is that these Amazons aren't perfect. On the contrary, Amazons are not. Amazons, in many ways, are just as flawed as men. But, but what comes out in this story, and you really see it, is this is Hera. This, the, 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 all the goddesses uh, have issues with Zeus because they have issues with men. They don't have issues with mankind per se, but with men in general. At one point, it's the abuses of not men by men that they're concerned about because men abuse arguably everything. It's not just the women that men abuse. And and the, and Hera just wants to give more agency to women. And she basically, they want to go to Zeus and say, look, we want to create, you, you've created uh, mankind. You call it mankind. We want 
female kind is basically what they're doing. I'm, I'm dumbing it down here because you got to read this and look at the, like you said, the art's fantastic, beautiful. The drawing of the, the different feminine forms here of all shapes and sizes by Phil Gemini is absolutely gorgeous. And, and the agency and the power and the regency and the regalness and the beauty that is given to all these different kinds of women uh, who form the five tribes of Amazons uh, is just, it's just absolutely beautiful. And the origins of Hippolyta, who will become queen of the Amazons as a young woman who essentially is, uh, you know, lives in a village and is essentially a midwife and, and helps uh, a woman uh, in her birth, birthing her third child. Unfortunately, the third child, it's her third daughter and the husband wants a son and can't afford a third third child unless it's a son. So they he sends Hippolyta off to basically drown and kill the child. Hippolyta refuses to do so and ultimately ends up uh, ends up second guessing herself, wanting to save the child. Ultimately, it, it appears in her attempts to do so, she gets stopped and, and, and abused by men and and ultimately rescued rescued by these newly created Amazons who are just newly created. And, and at one point, uh, you know, uh, it says you cannot outpace the world of men. And it's true. You, you can't, they're everywhere. And at one point, Hippolytus says to, uh, Anti Antiope, or if I'm saying that name right, Antiope, uh, she says, do you know what I've done? Because Hippolyta feels like she's feel so guilty. Do you know what I've done? And I love what Antiope says. She says, I know what this world has required of you and I know what that has cost. And, and it's, and I just love the way that that was put and that Antiope was just stating a fact that whatever you did, this is what this world has required of you. And this world happens the, the, the way it's controlled. It's controlled by men you have no, you have no agency. You got no freedom. You, you have no independence. We're going to change that. And you're our inspiration. And of course, ultimately, Hippolyta will become the first queen of the Amazons. At least we can assume that. And I love it. And, you know, I, I really encourage people to pick this up because if it's one thing, this is not something where if you're thinking, if people are thinking that, oh, you're going to read this and this is a man bashing book. This isn't a man bashing book. When I read this, even I was pissed off at Zeus. You know, Zeus's attitude toward Hera when she just wants to create, you know, create a little bit of female empowerment, you know, create a little bit, uh, a counterpoint to the power of men in man's world. They just want to create something. They want to create their own little pocket of, of female empowerment there. I didn't, I don't really see that there's anything wrong with that. And just looking for a little balance, just looking it, exactly. for fairness. That's exactly it's not, right. It's not like they want things to swing all the way over the other way. Yeah. They're and, just looking for a little, <laughs> a little balance. Give me something. Throw me, yeah. a, throw me a bone. You know, it, that's exactly right. And, and so I, I, and I really never felt, I'm not reading in a bunch of politics into this because look, can you imagine a more chauvinistic asshole God than, than Zeus? All the crap that Zeus has done, the chauvinistic, ridiculous things, the, the, the philandering that Zeus has done. And of course, look, Hera is no saint by any stretch either. But is it really that much of a stretch that Hera is going to engage in the same type of creation as Zeus is? Zeus creates mankind. Why the hell is, why can you not expect Hera to want to do the same to balance, like you said, balance the scales? 
to me, this isn't even about politics. This is almost the origins of this almost come from the arrogance and the ego of the gods. And that's what I like about it. It's not necessarily a political origin that you have to read into. Well, you know, it has to be this way. I like the fact that this was, these were female gods that, 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 that took offense to all these males, all the male gods, like taking pot shots at them, making a joke about it. Well, is it really a surprise that the Amazons came into existence? I almost think the existence of the Amazons is inevitable given what came before. And so in any event, I thought it was really good. I got a lot more to say about it. Um, maybe we'll collaborate further down the road, but I, I have a lot more to say about this. I could talk for quite a bit. There's a lot of little subtopics on it, but suffice to say, I'm in this for the long haul. For those people watching, uh, Kelly Sudakonic has said this has been approved for three volumes but she actually has, it's a nine volume story. So she says, if you like it, please tell DC, tweet about it, talk about it. Uh, I personally want her to be able to publish all nine volumes. There's only, DC's only approved the first three volumes of this. Uh, and she, and it, they're each going to have a different artist, but she's, she's got a story with a beginning, a middle and an end. And, and the story will end. That ninth volume is going to end with Steve Trevor washing up on the shores of Themyscira. That's going to be the final scene. We already know that. And the reason for that is that this is the story of Amazons. This is the story of women and the Amazons. And because one of the things that Kelly Sudakonic noticed was that the story of Wonder Woman, and it always irritated her, and it's interesting, that the story of Wonder Woman started with the story of a man washing up on Paradise Island. Well, this is very deliberately such that this is the story of the Amazons, the history of the Amazons, and it will end with a man washing up on Paradise Island. And I think that's very interesting. But I, I encourage people to go and check that. Uh, check out that interview with John Cetris on Word Balloon. It's, I think it's really good. Uh, and uh, yeah, guys, get out there and buy Historia. And uh, as I'm talking about it, this is definitely, uh, this will, this this is my, my pick of the week. It just ekes out uh, Tom King's <laughs> uh, Human Target issue too. Yeah, for me, it, it's, it's not close, but it's not because of quality of work. In quality of work, they're very, they're very close. Yeah. If I was basing it just on quality of work, I'd be like you, this barely ekes it out. The reason it beats it by a mile is because I've been waiting for this for three years. I've been so <laughs> excited to see this from Kelly Sue and Phil Jimenez. Uh, Phil, who's been on the show and is, and uh, I always love talking to at shows and, and we're, we're friendly um, and he's just fantastic. Uh, and Kelly Sue, who I have not had on the show, but hope to have on soon to talk about this. Uh, so hopefully we can make that happen for you guys. But but that's the reason for me. It's just that that extra anticipation. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. So that's why it beats out um, Human Target by so so much. But yes, in terms of judging it in a vacuum, they're very very close. So uh, all right, well that's all the books that are out this week, everybody. In terms of singles, there are uh, some collections. There's a Superman and the Authority hardcover. That's the recent four issue mini. Uh, with Mikel Yanin art written by Grant Morrison. There's also a trade paperback for the first volume of Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Uh, there's a Truth and Justice trade paperback that collects all of the uh, Digital First series. Uh, and then season two of The Green Lantern, also by Grant Morrison, with art by friend of the show, Liam Sharp. Some spectacular, spectacular art uh, by Liam Sharp. So that tells the second half of their story. Uh, again, it's volume one, but it's season two. So The Green Lantern, Season 2, Volume 1, that's out this week 
uh, as well. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, uh, everybody. Uh, as always, want to thank you for listening. Uh, and yeah, stay tuned. We very well may collaborate on that uh, episode focused just on uh, Wonder Woman history because, yeah, we could go on for hours and hours just about that alone. Uh, I don't have any other content coming out this week that I know of yet, but 12 Days of the Comic Source is coming up soon. So be sure you're prepared for that. I did 78 episodes for the 12 Days last year. Can't promise we'll get that much out this year, but we'll see. Uh, anything else you want to shout out on your uh, channel recently? Uh, yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, what will be coming out uh, later tonight or tomorrow, I reviewed uh, Mark Millar's uh, opening issue of called King of Spies with Matias Scalera. Uh, which I quite enjoyed. It's an old. Uh, it's a story of a of an older James Bond-like character looking back with regret on a on a life uh, that was very fairly unfulfilling, and he wants to deal with the real bastards before he slowly dies from a brain tumor in six months' time. It's a fun comic book, and I'll be reviewing that <laughs> on or around December first. So, uh, yeah, and beyond that, uh, yeah, I'll be. I'm, I'm going to be reviewing more indie independent comics more and more as the weeks uh, continue. Great. And don't forget, everybody, if you're listening to us on audio only, head over to YouTube, do a search for the comic space boom, exclamation point, the comic boom, that's Rocky's channel. Be sure you subscribe, like this video, ring that notification bell so you know when new content goes up. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of the other uh, audio content from the comic source, just go to your favorite podcast app or podcast platform, do a search for the comic source. We're on all of them and subscribe to us as well. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Thank you for joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.